Should we test our microphones? Honk, honk. I also honk. <laughs> Tom also honks. That's, uh, it's better than one two. <laughs> right, we get it. You're a musician. <laughs> I wanted to improve on the one two one two earlier. I thought I'd step up my game. <laughs> That's going in before the opening theme. <laughs> Shit. Hello and welcome to episode 236 of the Crate and Crowbar. It is the 20-something of April. I didn't check. My name is Chris Thurston and tonight I'm joined by Tom Francis. Hello. And Tom Senior. Hello. We're back. I've, I always say we're back for some reason now at the beginning because <laughs> I'm always surprised, but it feels like ages since we've done this because Rest was a week and a half ago. Mm. And since th- that's just how time works. That's not news. The news <laughs> is entirely different. The news is we're back. <laughs> Indeed. You better be ready. No, so the news this week is that uh, Campo Santo is Valve now. Yeah. And, and vice versa. Part of Valve. <laughs> they just swapped it. jobs. That's how I understand a massive how this coup. Like Gabe Newell and, and Eric Johnson have just sort of like stepped out to to make uh, story games, and all the guys from the guys from Campesanto are now making Valve do. The great like that was the deal, but Campesanto didn't realize that. Like they knew they'd been hired at Valve, they didn't realize everyone else at Valve is leaving. <laughs> they just show up in this giant empty office. Like we have to run Steam now somehow. I appreciate that FG Brothers almost immediately, but it's weird that in the business world there isn't like a swap option. <laughs> like you got like merge and whatever, but you don't have like just like exchange these two entities functionally. Anyway, point is that Valve has, as, as they used to do, um, snaffled the team. Yeah. It's, um, the Valve's thing used to be they would hire some people who made a thing and then make a sort of better souped up version of it at Valve. Yeah. I think it was basically a portal and not that could a drop. Um, but in this case, they are hiring everyone at Campo Santo in the middle of Valley of Gods development and they're going to continue making a Valley of Gods. Um, I don't think with any, uh, well, I haven't said anything about it, you know, changing dramatically. Um, and they're still going to release it, but as a Valve game. And so that's kind of the crazy thing. Like, I don't know what the timeline for Artifact is, but this might be the next Valve game. <laughs> it's Valley of Gods. <laughs> a, a, a first person story game about making a film in Egypt. <laughs> <laughs> it's funny because, like, almost every Valve game that I can think of post I guess the Steam era, whatever you'd call post like Half-Life 2 development Valve is like pretty much the work of a team within Valve, right? Like yeah. it's not here is the company coming together on a project. Like, you know, the Dose 2 team is much smaller than Valve as a company, the TF2 team, yeah. etc. So when you talk about Valve game, you are really talking about these 20 to 30 to 40 to have many people at Valve and some other people wheel, who wheel past <laughs> make this, you know what I mean? And that's really interesting. Um, it's almost like an interesting kind of like state change for the game. It isn't a state change at all, but does it get considered differently now that there are these ostensibly wheelie resources available to it? <laughs> Can't hurt, right? I mean, it's, it's, it seems like it could only make it better if they get to keep all the creative freedom and yeah. they get to, you know, keep stay being Camposanto and writing that game and making it how they want to make it. It's pretty great that they've just got all that extra programming expertise and Valve expertise there with them. Yeah, will it do the will it do the Valve credits thing where no one's job titles are listed? Yeah, and just <laughs> I, the, I expect so. Actually. Yeah, yeah. Kind of made me think about my own presumptions about what a Valve game is, really, mm. uh, because I was thinking, oh, it's just a 
not just a story game but it's, it's a story game and, and valve don't tend to make just purely story games i always expect some sort of systemic intrigue from valve you know something like dota is just a huge complex yeah, yeah. massive systems it's kind of a sandbox but actually i i'm not sure where i've got that from based on all of their past because like valve games are very story driven actually there's mm. loads of cutscenes, there's loads of voice acting very strong stories portal a, story, a game that is so perfect it doesn't even need a story really it has a f- fucking great story and great joke writing and stuff and one of the things that i'd love to see I like the idea that um, the talent in Campo Santo kind of bleed into Valve and kind of as much as Valve's entities yeah. bleeds back into that studio. And that, you know, Chet Valzek has left Valve, um, Eric Walpole left Valve, uh, and it, getting some of those really talented writers from Campo Santo back into Valve seems like a cool thing to me. Uh, yeah, it does. A really good thing for both, both companies. I would presume that that's the incentive for this from Valve's part, right? Like, you know, they, I mean, because this happens from time to time, right? Like, devs join Valve, but like, in terms of adopting a whole studio, it would make sense to me. It's like we want this particular, we want this particular skill set in our ecosystem for whatever reason, because obviously, you know, they don't. This is not a business decision they had to make, right? Like, there has to be a, yeah. a logic for them. Yeah, it's also just balancing something out. Like, maybe they've got loads of engineering expertise and loads of kind of business expertise, but like, just like knowing how they how they work um they are generally most interested in people like mm. they want to hire a bunch of good people who are going to be useful long term valve always thinking like 10 years ahead mm. um and so they they really want a whole load of uh of people and so when they like buy a team like this or buy a game and hire the team uh it's the team they're probably more interested in than um uh it's not like they thought shit value of gods is going to make a billion dollars we must buy the rights to that game yeah. <laughs> so we're gonna we save our flagging that. retail business <laughs> <laughs> yeah it's um uh, it'll be really interesting to see how well it does do actually because mm. you know firewatch was a big hit they're definitely like you know one of the most successful indie developers but of course a big hit for an indie is completely insignificant in valve's terms obviously it being a valve game will massively increase its exposure um i wonder t- how much mm. yeah that's really interesting like what what position it then occupies on steam like you, you basically you have to even though it's been considered this way until now it has to stop being considered an indie game yeah like can't it can't be you can't make an indie game like and be uh, like have it published and produced with all of our resources behind it mm. like if that's the case what does indie mean <laughs> like already a strained yeah. concept in some ways i think it'll be really interesting when that game is done because I want to know, we won't find out for years, but I want to know what that team do afterwards. Do they yeah. stay as a team and make another thing like that? Or uh, do they completely disperse and all join other Valve projects? Or do a bunch of Valve people join onto them? And Yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Like, it reminds me a lot of, like, the, that run of years, 10 plus years ago now, where Valve picked up a lot of mod teams that then in some mm. cases found homes elsewhere. Sometimes, like, thinking of, oh, um, is it Turtle Rock? Yeah. Did left for dead yeah like there's like you know there's that history of them sort of like adopting a particular group and there is also a history for those groups kind of sticking together in some way or not you know that like or or just you know um or stick around within the team or like certain aspects of people's aspects staying and some going but it feels like that kind of mid-sized indie studio with a hit under their belt is like to this decade or this era or whatever what like the maker of the most successful half-life one mod was in the late 90s right like yeah. it's like talent without all of the resources it could potentially have mm. but that just means a very different thing now like if um 
if those battle royale armor mods were happening in that you know in valve's past like it's about a decade ago that's exactly the sort of thing you could see valve snapping up and just making themselves right yeah but it definitely does seem to have changed um yeah and it's got me excited about Valve again. Between that and Artifacts, which I'm really excited about. Yeah, playing. I'm really excited about it. Uh, but that was the thing, right? Them just revealing that they had kidnapped Richard Garfield. <laughs> right. <laughs> We've got him, everybody. Yeah. <laughs> no one realised he was missing, but here he is. Got him in the talent bunker. Like, that was... Yeah, that that makes that super exciting. Yeah. Yeah. It's... It's cool. Like, I'm happy for those guys. I know some of them from Dota International's past. So, mm. you know, it's just nice to kind of see that kind of journey reach a conclusion that makes it sound like they've gone into the west to remain collateral <laughs> which is not what i mean but you know what i mean like yeah. it's nice to see kind of i guess that talent recognized and you're right tom it's nice to see valve actively seek that particular kind of talent because it mm. has nothing to do with ar or vr or you know not to disparage those things necessarily but like presumably that's not the team you get if what you're making is like more apps right or like freaky controller (laughs) (laughs) we should talk about what everyone's been playing tom do you want to kick us off uh yes kind of (laughs) because i want to talk about the ludum dare stuff which is i haven't played any of it (laughs) okay well i just wanted to um things you've been thinking about yeah um, so the Ludum Dare is this, uh, two day game making competition that happens every year, podcast voice. Um, and the theme this year was combine two un- incompatible ideas. And so I've just been watching, um, a bunch of entries, uh, that have come out of that. Um, and I'm going to play some of these, but I haven't played any yet. Um, most of these were brought to my attention by, uh, a Twitter user, by the name of Trasavol Dog. <laughs> um, and that's a good person to follow if you want to see cool games. Um, but one, uh, is called Sheet Music Editor Shoot 'em Up, <laughs> in which you seemingly play as, uh, I want to say, uh, Tom, you know music. Is that a single clef or? Uh, yeah, that's treble clef. Treble clef. So uh, you're on five lines. It looks like a crotchet's fighting. <laughs> it's like a side-scrolling shoot 'em up in which you're a crotchet. <laughs> yeah, going from quadra clef, multi clef. And you like the lines that that normally you know separate out the um uh the notes scales. What uh, are bouncy ropes that you bounce <laughs> onto over yeah. dodge some the dangly music just... gentleman? <laughs> yeah, the dangly music gentleman. Um, so that's amazing. Uh, then there's Crash Crops, which is a breakout style game where when your ball goes past, uh, the bricks, which are a bunch of rocks, it arrives in some fertile ground, uh, where everything it passes through is like corn and it grows the corn one stage as it passes through them. And then when you bounce through corn multiple times, you grow it into a crop and I guess harvest it. (laughs) It's like breakout, but farming. Yeah. Um, and then there's, uh, Turn-based asteroid snake roguelike, <laughs> which is side-scrolling snake-type player avatar. You're a snake that you kind of move around in four directions, and your trail, your tail follows behind you. But you're dodging asteroids that are coming from the left, and they only move when you do in in the roguelike style. <laughs> um, then there is peace with an at sign for the A, uh, where I guess. I don't see an explanation of what this combines, but it looks to me like it combines roguelike ASCII, or rogue, I guess, ASCII, um, 
graphics with a platformer. So you play as the at symbol, but you're jumping around and like wall jumping on on things, and there's screen shake and all these effects piled <laughs> on top of the ASCII. Um, and then there's Gone Vroom, <laughs> which is a racing game plus walking simulator. It appears to be just gone home, but you're a car. <laughs> Fabulous. And is there a ra- is it a race in that context? I don't know. Or is it, are you just a car? Um. I can't tell. The screenshot is just the, the front gate from uh, from Gone Home, but just a giant car. Yeah. <laughs> it, actually, when you when you play it twice in a time trial, that's when you get the ghost. Ah, uh, of course, <laughs> <New Game> Plus. <laughs> yep. So that all seems amazing, and uh, I'm sure there's there's more cool stuff there. I will put links to all of those things in the show notes. Thanks, Tom, for doubling the length of the show notes. <laughs> no worries. <laughs> in a single uh, two-minute run. Those are all ones I retweeted, so the links are all on my um, my Twitter account if you need this. Um, yeah, Luton Dare's always been super cool. I used to rely on it really heavily for filling out the download section of the back of PC Gamer back in the day seven years ago. <laughs> yeah. Um, sometimes the themes I don't like, uh, it's voted on, the theme. Um and that tends to uh favor themes that just suggest one particular game mm. like i'll just be one about like uh you're always running out of power or something like that and you can tell it ignites a lot of people's imaginations but they're all thinking of the same game I right think. yeah and then inevitably um uh when it's when the entries come in there are shitloads of takes on the same thing whereas this one i really like because it's it, like it seems like everyone had a different idea for what the two incompatible things should be it's a really good like it's just a really good idea like it's um it's basically i think there's pretty much the same um criteria for like a good loot and uh, game jam idea as there is for like a really good podcast question <laughs> where, where it's like where because you, you, you're right where not everyone has the same answer to it right like where it is this sort of like what if kind of oh that reminds me when we get to questions i have a question <laughs> okay sure you can ask it now if you like. Or do you want to do it pro- properly during the I don't the know. What do you think? Yeah, that's a question. It. Let's go for it. Yeah, let's, yeah. okay, let's this do is questions from Tom. Oh my yeah. god. Two and episodes in. Do it. Um, okay, so in Far Cry 5, uh, there's a dog companion and it will apparently, I've never actually seen it do this, but apparently it'll sometimes go out and pick up weapons for you and bring them to you. I don't want it to do that at all. What I want it to do is go and get my arrows from enemies. Right. So the question is, uh, what service would you like a pet in a game to provide for you that currently they don't? Ooh. Interesting. Mm. I mean, Torchlight did the, did the best one, which was mm. to go sell your shit, uh, at local, you know, back in town and come back to you with profit mm. w- without skimming any of it, as far as you know. Uh, yeah, so. that's really good. I would like the dog that barks codex entries at me so I don't have to read them. Yeah. <laughs> 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 the quarry <laughs> The Deckard Cain dog. <laughs> yeah, exactly. The law dog. Um, I'd like the dog. Deckard Cain. Deckard Cain's going to be in Heroes of the Storm, and one of his yes. uh, special abilities is called Lornado, <laughs> yeah. uh, which is brilliant. As so- a bit of side news there, a bit of bonus yeah. news. Uh, the dog I would like is if in if you're in a, a stealth game and you're crouching behind a cupboard or some shit, and you're just slowly waiting for a, a dude to do his really long, circuitous route, just so you, can, you know you can jump out and get him. I just want a little terrier that goes and just harries them really quickly around that route, just to get them there faster, just deploy a little terrier, just nips at their heels, just gets them around faster, then blam, <laughs> To get you the window faster. That's, that's really right, really yeah, A yeah, patrol yeah. route accelerating terrier. <laughs> Man, there's, there's a lot in that. 
idea. Um, Maybe like a time terrier just fast forwards time itself <laughs> to make this happen. Essentially, faster. yeah, but 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 you make it look like a thing a dog might be able to do. Just <laughs> <laughs> really fast barking, everything speeds up. So do, the, a lot of small dogs do have a very high pitched bark as if it's been sped up. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's true. Yeah, so it makes Eagles, sense. Yeah. I feel like there's going to be some good uses for birds. Birds are getting better and better in games. This is one thing, a big trend in the last four or five years. Better birds. Birds have been picking up the slack. We've got binocular birds in, you know, we've got Assassin's Creed, you know, just fly across the entire fucking yeah, world with a bird. Mm. Birds are just, just on top. They're doing so well, but it feels like that's it. Birds they, are on top. They, they should, there's, there's so much untapped potential there for something they could swoop down and steal a guy's hat. Or, <laughs> you know, that's it. Just think. <laughs> sure, you, you can fly across all of ancient Egypt, but think bigger. Think hats. <laughs> what if <laughs> i would actually love uh any kind of animal that could uh run out and like drag the body of the person i just killed to a secluded place yeah that's a good idea or eat it wholesale i guess just ignore it yeah <laughs> mm. yeah because i mean most of the sort of obvious sort of animal verbs are, are accounted for right like, oh kill sniff I just, I just remembered uh dishonored has rats that can eat corpses for you that's, so that's kind of covered yeah that is lethal though that is strictly lethal mm. um I think, like, I don't know, like the the dog that just sort of like charms an enemy for you, not rather than like the non <laughs> like rather than like the lethal takedown, just the non lethal dog takedown, which is where it's like, oh, who's this? Who are you doing? <laughs> like that that version of it would be great. Like even if it just temporarily like help, maybe it's the opposite of the time terrier, like that it kind of like doesn't accelerate the guide around there, hmm. the path it freezes them in a particular spot for a long time yeah it's like that dishonored two power which is kind of like a mesmerized thing where it's just like a twisting it's just a golden can retriever <laughs> it's just a lovely <laughs> retriever can you or like so you could probably do like almost all of dishonored two's powers with dogs like domino <laughs> is just whatever you do to someone the dog just to someone else yeah. <laughs> push them off a cliff <laughs> <laughs> go lassie fuck him up dogimo um <laughs> Uh, good question, Tom. Yeah. Thanks. <laughs> Should write in more often. Yep, that's it. That's it, listeners. Up your game. <laughs> <laughs> Just ask questions about what, what a dog do. That's, that's it. So I know, Tom, you and I have been playing the same games. We have. I've been playing less less of them than you, Chris. <laughs> I played about a couple of hours of each, but you've completed both. Yeah. Um, and re- reviewing both. So that's why I did that, because I had to. Um, also because I enjoyed it. Mm. So... And a through line here is that both the games that we talk about, and they're basically the thing that probably the two big things coming out this week are, are Battletech and Frostpunk. And both of them it have stuck in my mind. Maybe this is because where my head's been anyway, but both of them to me really feel like successful adaptations of tabletop experiences mm. as much as they feel like games. Cause maybe we start with Battletech because like, so this is the, um, Mech Warrior strategy like turn-based strategy game mech warrior xcom is the easiest and quickest way to explain it um XCOM, got it. yeah that was i've used that okay. on two separate <laughs> <game> articles <laughs> because it, there's no better big word yeah. for it than that like there just isn't um and uh um i, I was looking forward to it a really long time and i really like it um and uh i think it's obviously it's obviously of interest to like everyone here because like turn-based tactics games with mm-hmm. the persistent element we all like oh, them yeah. a great deal um but there are a few things that make it feel quite different. One is the fact that it doesn't use a grid. Um, it has a sort of like, uh, movement value based movement system and, and true line of sight in, uh, very granular 
um, what can hit C, what and when kind of stuff. Uh, it's enormously granular generally in terms of how its combat system links together very much about like facings and positioning and heat and stability and different weapons firing, having different optimal ranges and kind of, um, trying to basically like, um, push the odds in your favor over the course of a battle where the environment has an effect. But when a fight is joined, cover isn't the be all and end all. Like there's like, uh, it's an interesting strategy game, uh, for me because, because it deals with these massive robots, you're not doing the XCOM thing of like, if I am ever not fully behind a small wall, <laughs> I'm probably fucked. It, it has a lot more granularity in how safety is achieved. And that in turn opens up like, uh, it's not just that weapons are effective at different ranges. It's that like, different mechs and different pilots even have different ways of putting themselves in a safe position which is i think if i had to drill down like one system in a very 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 systemsy game mm. that's both the thing that i like the most about it and also actually the thing that reminds me the most of tabletop war games because it feels like there isn't like an absolute like an XCOM, which feels more not, not uh uh, feels more board gameish or something like it feels more uh, digital that kind of relationship between like i'm in cover i'm not yeah whereas battletech has a really kind of fluid system for like for example if you move uh, a long way on your turn you get loads of stacks of something called evasion which basically adds makes you much harder to hit um but if you have the right perks and you don't move at all you gain both entrenched and guarded which makes you take half damage from the front <laughs> and um makes you much harder to knock over so depending on the pilot and the situation in the mech it's like it's far less obvious like what the exact right play is or it's not like always a given that like the right thing to do in this situation is to attempt to flank for example like it comes down to granular details of loadout and skill training and stuff and that's really neat i really like that about it what's your experience been like so far tom yeah i really like it a lot i think it's really 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 good um i like that just it feels so different to it is it's right to compare it to XCOM on a like surface level, but it's such a different kind of feeling game, uh, yeah. particularly because it tends to be about you're only controlling like four mechs. But what those four mechs can do, you get to personalize like to a great extent in like the bits in between the tactical battles. You're running a kind of mercenary ship and um, you have to kind of take jobs to earn money and use that to refit your mechs. And uh, you're also earning salvage from the battlefield. And the whole meta is super fucking good, actually. I really like the It's really good. Yeah, the kind of risk reward of going for more money or less money and taking salvage and a lot of the kind of gambles that you take to keep your little business it's like a business management game outside of <laughs> it the is, actual yeah. um tactics game but the tactics game is is great because it feels so different to other stuff like xcom and it's kind of i feel like it hasn't just resolutely kowtowed to xcom's example it's gone its own way and, and stayed very faithful to the battletech universe and the battletech war game and that means uh a lot of randomization um uh, a lot of kind of granular dice rolling against specific bits of mechs and a very unusual damage system whereby you're trying to chip away at armor to compromise the internal structure. And once the internal structure is revealed, then other weapons can be used to exploit that. And you're looking for critical hits on certain bits of body parts to actually yeah. eliminate them and blow bits off. Uh, and this is, um, this cuts both ways. Um, cause obviously your mechs can be equally affected by that. If someone kind of uses a load of rockets to strip away bits of armor, they could get a lucky shot that hits an ammo dump that just obliterates the mech. Like very unlucky, but it can happen. You have to, 
you have to know that and work around it. So that involves even just turning your mech sideways. So your <laughs> undamaged side is presented to the enemy. It's like, that's the level of kind of detail you're using to actually move your guys around the battlefield. Um, and there's great stuff like, um, you've got long range missiles that can go over mountains, but only if you've got a spotter. So if you've, you have these little mechs who run around and they, they gain evasion for running around, which makes them harder to hit. And that's how they defend themselves. Um, but you could run one round into some woods and if they've got, you know, uh, eyes on one mech, you can, volley like loads of rockets over a mountain to hit him and that stuff's just really satisfying and really exciting and feels very different to XCOM there's some interesting stuff because yeah like hit chances are random Mm. Um, so it goes back to the sort of um, the dice roll thing which I know that the sort of like you know is that fun is it not fun that's you know but what like a war game I think um, or like a tabletop war game it has that thing of like there's always a way of playing or positioning or making decisions better to make sure that the shots you do get are useful Mm. which is one thing right like you can be in a situation, uh, particularly late game, when you have the assault mechs, which are massive, and have, you know, you might have like a dozen weapons on a mech, and so not all of them are going to have a good chance to hit all of the time. Mm. Um, but you'll probably be able to put yourself in situations where if you set things up right, when you get that deep in the initiative order, you're looking at like 90 plus chances to hit with everything. Um, but then you've got like loads of interesting abilities that sort of encourage you to not see those percentage chances as such a loss. Like... Uh, if you invest skill points in the gunnery tree, you get the multi-shot ability, which mm-hmm. means that you can designate multiple targets and then divide your weapons up to your heat limit between as many targets as are valid, which means that you can be in a situation where your mech with the cool long-range missiles has closed to close range or has something close to close, close range with them, and they can shoot that thing with all their medium missiles but still volume missiles over the hill at something else because, yeah, your percent chance to hit with those long-range missiles at close range might have dropped significantly Mm. but you can actually like try and engineer a situation where i have an enemy at range one and an enemy at range three and i can be maximally efficient which is the most satisfying thing about it yeah the weapons themselves are really interesting as well they've got lots of different kind of so if you missiles don't cause a lot of heat when you fire them lasers cause loads of heat but missiles require ammo and you need to salvage Mm. ammo or buy it so you could go for like a massive laser build but and and they'll do really well on an ice planet because on ice planets you don't heat up as much um or if you go into if there's um you know a, a map with a big river if you go into a river and then fire lasers the, the game takes that into account and says okay you're in a, a wet cold place so actually the heat is going to be dispersed into the, your surroundings mm. like it's that detailed with its stuff so if you want to go like full laser on an ice planet you can do that or you could have a mix ideally you want to mix really but yeah the lasers refract when they move from a different substrate like from water to air no shit i'm, I'm asking as much in real un- life as i am in the game i don't know if that's can't actually be what lasers do water, so yeah, that would never actually oh, okay. occur you, you basically you wait you paddle right you do like a heat dispersing paddle i actually don't know if in real life where the lasers refract normal light does but yeah maybe lasers are special <laughs> do you not know hmm. Hmm. tell us <laughs> yeah let's write in let's let know. us know or test it don't test it yeah it's, <laughs> it's, it's really, a safe environment to test it i appreciate like describing these things like this is what's so exciting to me about it is mm. that it's so granular and so many interesting kind of systems at work and it's consistently i think satisfying to try and turn situations to your advantage um the ai is like good but in a single-minded way and it Mm. plays like you do like it does the thing where it focuses your weakest mech as much as it can yeah and that initially can seem quite single-minded until you realize that that's how all players play strategy games like you take you pick a target and you keep shooting at that thing and trying to exploit its weaknesses until that's dead because that's more um and um but what's interesting about that is it means that like 
it's very difficult. Like I maybe I played 50 hours of X of, of Mexcom uh, of, um, of BattleTech finished it. I finished the campaign. Like, it keeps going. But, um, and I have like had a kind of perfect finish once, hmm. like a no repair bills incurred kind of like nobody hurt, uh, win once. And it was a mission that, I was arguably probably a little bit overpowered for because I'd salvaged a really good mech in the previous one. Hmm. Um, and that's really promising to me. I think the one thing I wanted to bring it up, bring up about it again in the context of XCOM, but not in a way that it's really drag XCOM at all so much just to say that like a problem that all games like this have is how do you keep the difficulty curve interesting over yeah, time? Um, and I definitely got to a point where like I was more comfortable than I was at the start, which is still the kind of weird backwards difficulty curve of these kinds of games. So, but it sustains it. Like, I think it has a much better curve than particularly, um, XCOM on enemy unknown enemy within did where it like, I always found those games have an issue with being like extremely punishing <laughs> and then suddenly fine. Whereas, um, I would say that, um, Battletech starts off like, asking you to make some hard decisions um and it does ramp up and then it maybe shelves off a bit in terms of how difficult it gets when you get the best stuff in the mm. game um and you have enough upgrades and space that you can kind of rotate things in and out and afford to do that um but like on, on the way there you go through a much more kind of like long running and interesting kind of um relationship with uh the, the outcomes of each mission it's far less um it's got a really nice kind of soft fail system where if, as long as you complete a single objective in a mission, you can withdraw from it and get a good faith failure, which gets gets you partial payment. It yeah. means you probably don't take a reputation hit with the people who hired you. It depends exactly what you do, but mm-hmm. you can take a kind of, um, you can take a, a loss, but it's really a win, which is like, um, kind of what i want from these kinds of games like it traditionally mm. retreating is just failing like yeah so in xcom it's um you can retreat but uh it's basically about protecting your losses basically and just saying i just can't afford to lose any more soldiers but you're certainly not getting any benefits from that like mm. you're not even getting any scrap from the battlefield or anything uh though i have like <clears throat> i think it's, um i've all my positive battle tech so far have just been quite minor things um some of the scenarios aren't great i think in terms of um i think there's an escort scenario that is like quite boring where it's just about you know some trucks driving from one bit to another and you've got to run your mechs with them there's several turns of just kind of running them alongside and not much happening um i've had it uh, that mission bug out as well once in a couple of crashes just a little bit of instability nothing too bad um the biggest problem i think as a new player is simply the onboarding stuff uh, particularly around the interface yeah uh, because the interface mm. is actually very good once you understand what's going on it's actually very good at telling you there's a huge amount of information to actually give you about what's going on what the fuck is happening with each mech like how hot is it how unstable is it like if you take loads of kind of missile damage or artillery damage you can be knocked over or you know be at risk of toppling and if you, if you fall over people basically get free shots free targeted shots at bits of you yeah and uh, you basically get bullying yeah yeah <laughs> so you can send a, a mech to go and kick another mech over and then you can try and shoot them in the head and uh, headshots are amazing in uh, battle tech because if you take out the head you basically just kill the pilot and you get to salvage the rest of that shit oh, no. yeah. so there's, there's that risk reward as well to it which is rad uh and that that's like that i've done it once and it feels so good yeah. <laughs> it's so good when that happens um but yeah scenarios and basically just it its tutorials are buried in conversations that you have on your ship with your crewmates. Yeah. And there isn't just a screen that shows you the interface icons and says, 
this is what this bar is. This is what this bar is. This is what this bit means. This is why these blocks are orange. This is why they're sometimes grey. And this is all the stuff that you just sort of have to fucking figure out. And I had to go on to Steam forums and stuff to find out. There's a there is a quite well hidden like question mark on the mech base specifically. Right, it explains a lot of mech internal system uh, stuff. Okay. But like it's th- that system isn't used anywhere else, and it does feel like they're mm. trying to. Like it's funny because. I think its strength as an adaptation of that source material is that, like, I came to it with a, having played X, a MechWarrior since I was a kid and was mm. like, I know what everything is. I'm, I'm in Candyland. And also the logic sustains across games. Yeah. So it's kind of interesting to have, like, a, a strategy game that uses so much the same logic as a first-person vehicle combat game that mm. you can just play it and it's, as soon as you get the handle on its particular way of doing things. But you're right, like, yeah. there's definitely a, a hill to climb. To it just needs it. It just, I mean... I'd have to go hunting for that screen. It was on the, if it's a small icon on, in the mech. The top left of the mech base screen. Uh, cause there's, there's a lot of, that's one of the easiest screens as well. Yep. That's where you manage all of your armaments and stuff. Um, and as I say, the interface is quite efficient once you actually understand what's going on. It does the great thing of, um, when you're moving your mech, you move to various dots and the colors of the dots show what cover it is if you're in a forest or something like that. But it also draws lines to enemy mechs and says whether you're going to be able to hit them or not, <laughs> which is the thing X- XCOM always desperately needed, which yeah. is also in Phoenix it's, Point, incidentally. Yeah. It's super good. Yeah, that. it's like great, isn't when it? you mouse over a potential destination from your mech, it will, for your mech, it will highlight, um, in, in three different ways whether your mech will have a shot with indirect weapons, yep. which is kind of like a parabola kind of thing, whether your shot, mech will have a shot with direct weapons. For either of those cases, whether or not the shot is obstructed at any point by any form of, hmm. like, cover, uh, and whether or not other mechs will have line of sight to your mech, but you will not have sufficient degree of torso rotation to rotate to shoot them back. <laughs> and it does that with, like, three different colors, of, three different types of line yeah. that's super intuitive when you know what it is. Yeah. It sounds like, um, did you hear about uh, Jake Solomon talking about the the abandoned uh, things for XCOM where they had they, they called it the barber pole system where they tried right. to do more or less this where like every potential position you go to draw a line to every enemy you could or couldn't shoot mm. and the lines tried to reflect both if you could shoot them and if they could shoot you so half the line was about what they could do and half the line right. was about what you could do right. and they were striped if it was like in cover and uh, yeah it's pretty similar yeah he, he looks back at that as like a terrible failure and, like <laughs> thank god we ditched that terrible system <laughs> It's interesting because like it's quite similar in 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 in, in fucking hell <laughs> Mexico because like but it's it's I think it doesn't need to be that complicated. It's like if it's a red line, you can shoot each other. Um, if it's a dotted white line, they can shoot you because you don't need really. You can shoot them; they can't shoot you. Like that's probably not that important. There's another thing that will indicate if it's a flanking attack, but that's more dependent on them and what they're doing because yeah. there is no real such thing as a flanking attack. Rear armor is almost always weaker. But like, and it's almost always better, but mm. it's not like, um, you know, XCOM, particularly the, the Fractus XCOM yeah, games are study. like, you know, are so much about flanking attacks. Yeah. Like if it's like a single most important, like if you say that Into the Breach is about pushing and damage, those XCOM games are about flanking attacks. Yeah, totally. Um, like all of, um, Battletech's difficult, like difficulty curve is in service of the fact that like, it's such a weird, it's a game about fictional vehicles. Like it's a game about vehicles that have really intense internal logic. Mm. And some of it makes sense, but it is fictional logic. Like it, it's not real, but that fake logic sustains a, like a really interesting sort of strategic sandbox with loads of options because they can take advantage of the fact that you're not commanding people. You're commanding these kind of mad vehicles that work in a really specific way. Yeah. I know this thing I enjoyed about Phoenix point, which I mentioned on the previous pod where, um, Changing states of damage on tough 
enemies creates an evolving tactical situation on the battlefield. So it's not like that thing's dead or it isn't. Uh, it either can fully attack or not. You've got this thing where you blow an arm off. If, you know, it doesn't have the, mis- the, the laser attack or the missile attack that you care about, you can bank it and just ignore it and salvage yeah. it later. Like, uh, the, and also there's the damage your guys take. You can eject any of your dudes at any time to save your guy and leave your mech behind. And, um, there are times when you might want to do that. There are times when you want to just retreat a mech behind a hill and just have them barrage. But you're always kind of changing your roles on the fly and re- reacting to this changing battlefield state. And XCOM wasn't always like that. Like XCOM is kind of so brutal and so kind of mm. lethal that I, you either lose a thing or you don't. It's very, you know, you're not really doing much changing on the fly. Really. I think this is what's so successful about it for me is the way that that stuff all happens in the context of a battle and then the way those battles link into the strategic layer the meta layer Mm. in a very granular way like um it has a fail state which is if you can't pay the bills for a given month um and often that just means finish the mission just you have to win yeah and i find that that's a really interesting pressure because like there are ways of winning more or less like you can do missions might have secondary objectives and secondary objectives will increase the payout. But if this is like two days till payday or sorry, two days till the bills come in and you need just the basic amount of money from this mission and you're on your last legs, then any victory that gets you through <laughs> just enough is probably good enough. You yeah. know what I mean? And that's, there's that, uh, there is a pressure, there is a reward for min maxing and getting through perfectly but it's so hard to achieve that it feels almost unrealistic mm. which is a really good place to be where it's like you're succeeding enough that you keep going but you'll keep going with setbacks you're not getting the kind of like i have a perfect team and i never suffer negative consequences and when i do i reload a save thing that like mm. late game enemy within for example gets where it's like oh i'm just not going to bother with this outcome yeah like I've had examples where like, so there is a, there is a few things you can sort of game. Like you have a player character that you make at the start and they can't die for plot reasons. They can be very seriously wounded. And my um, space may spent like the first year of my battle tech campaign pretty much on the bench. <laughs> but the reason for that would be because I would put them in scout mechs because sometimes scout mech pilots just get fucked up. Like that has happened sometimes. <laughs> yeah. And so they're quite a safe person to put in that. Not safe, but like, it's not like you put loads of, loads of time as training them and now they, they're dead. Um, and like you do the, like, and that kind of encourages you into these kind of like cool kind of like sacrifice plays and things where mm-hmm. like, if we don't finish this mission, we can't pay the bills. The game ends. So I'm going to do a jumping jet, like jump jet attack from with my scout mech onto a big mech, which is normally kind of suicide, but like it's worth it in this particular scenario. Cause you fuck up both mechs and it allows you to just kind of crawl through by the skin of your teeth. Mm-hmm. And then you kind of keep that result because finding a different mission to run is impractical. And it was good enough to get you onto the next kind of month. And maybe that's enough to get you to the next thing. And I found that really gratifying, particularly in the first half of the game where it's mm-hmm. like, like, you know, you don't really have any choice but to win this mission. So any success is, is a win. You know what I mean? So you take more on and you, and you accept. I found myself, even though there is no Iron Man mode, naturally playing like that. Yeah. I felt, I found that too. I think part of that was because missions can be very long um mm. and one thing I, I i would love for the game it, there are options you can turn off in terms of skipping it, animations and stuff like that but even then the option to play at a faster clip would be great i mean i'd love to do a mission in 20 minutes because sometimes you're just doing missions to pay the bills and sometimes they're quite easy like you take like a deliberately easy mission you just want to top things up and make sure you want to get those upgrades on um and 
you want to be able to bash through those. You don't want to spend like an hour just like fiddling around with, with stuff. Yeah. Just some sort of like little ability to control the pace a bit for those lesser missions. Be like nice. I've seen the com- completely animation too long. I didn't find them to be so, but I agree that there are fiddly moments. Like mm. there are, it's sometimes inconsistent. It's quite good. For example, at like saying if you complete all the objectives on a mission and you've killed everything, it will just skip the bit where it asks you to then run to the extraction right. point. It'll yeah. just say, don't worry about it. You're done. Like, we'll just get you from, it literally someone says like, I can pick you up from there. Don't worry about it. Yeah. Um, but like you're sometimes in a scenario where like one turret survived in a corner of the map mm. and you can gamble on running to kill that turret and hoping it's the last thing, or you can just run to the extraction point and you get these kind of like slightly unsatisfactory mm. five minutes of jogging moments. <laughs> yeah. The jogging moments. Cause um, the game, snaps into kind of interleaved turn-based when enemies are within radar range uh, but between that you're just taking it in turns to jog your mechs <laughs> across the battlefield and actually if you're being super optimal you want to be moving them you don't want to be sprinting them because you want to be moving them then putting them in defensive posture in case an enemy kind of comes mm. onto the radar so actually if, you, if you're playing super optimally you're actually those bits are super slow and really really not great. yeah i found that for the most part you can get away with sprinting yeah because you often get like a turn before the turn to kind of like unscrew up your positioning but yeah, yeah. i often find it's um because the scouts are so much faster that you have to basically them keep them back a bit yeah because if they can if they overstretch they can get totally fucked if yeah, they yeah. encounter the enemy first which is tactically sensible it's just a kind of ball like to engineer that it works a lot better or like it's a lot less of a pronounced issue and this is something that like i, th- I feel is true for the game generally and it speaks to where the design happened but there is a like a skirmish mode mm. um which is also the multiplayer mode where you build a like a lance of mechs up to a money limit basically which is basically a point system this is where it feels really warhammery mm. to me and then you play in a way where like you will get each team on radar within a turn mm. like there's almost no fog of war because the maps are small enough that you will encounter each other quickly it's a fight and it's still interesting at that range like you know the radar system is important mm. but it's still interesting when you don't have it and it's all about effective use of ranges and positioning and counterplays and things yeah. and in that mode it feels a lot like the tabletop game like yeah, it's, it's mostly the kind of sprints between objectives in, yeah, in totally. single player missions that also in campaign missions that have that issue do love stamping on tanks though oh it's good uh yeah sometimes they try and take on your like massive skyscraper size mechs with just a normal tank and they'll send like two at a time and then you send your little assault mech that's really fast and you just run up and he stamps on them and they explode and it's great (laughs) if you jump on another mech uh where do you both end up? Are you both like on the same position at the end of you that? Sort or of, do you, you fall jump, them? But it, it, it's not a great animation. You jump next to them pretty much. Right. And then they have a chance to take damage. Jumping attacks do a potentially colossal amount of damage to your own legs. <laughs> um, so that's why jumping, that's fair enough. it depends on the relative weight. So like, mm. that's why jumping a light mech, uh, they do a lot of stability damage as well. So like jumping a light mech onto a big mech to knock it over. Yeah, as well. well. Is it, uh, if you don't, if you don't want to keep the small mech, because like, <laughs> the small mech will probably fall over from that as well. Right. The amount of damage it'll do to its legs. But it's like, that's the sort of like, get down, sir, kind of like, mm. sacrifice play. There's yeah. so much stuff I really like about it. Like, I really like its initiative system. Mm. Um, which means that different mech, based on the weight of the mech, usually, and its pilot, um, mechs are assigned a kind of a slot out of five slots in the initiative order. And then those initiative slots happen in sequence. And then when multiple mechs share the same slot, players take it in turn to activate one of them. Mm. So if all of your mechs and all your, your mech, their mechs are in the same initiative column, then everyone just takes it in turns to pick a mech and activate it. Yeah. So I go, you go thing. But, um, you have the option to like be faster if you're a scout mech or something and go first. 
which it has some upsides and downsides, but also certain abilities and being knocked over can move you, push you deeper in the order. So if you can knock someone over early in the round, yeah, so like sink down. Yeah. So this is just the kind of, it's like, you know, maybe this is boring if people aren't super into strategy design, but like the kind of like headspace this puts you in is like, if I do jump my little mech because it'll activate first into that big mech and knock it over, that big mech is now going to be on the ground until every single everything else I've got has had a chance to fire because yeah. it's on the ground, I can take those uh cold shots at its head or legs or arms. And that's like that's worth it. I've decided that's worth it. Mm. And then the reason that's interesting is because doing that will probably wreck the light mech. I might lose the pilot. I'll probably lose its legs. Either way, I'm paying for the repairs after this battle. Mm-hmm. It's not like my I mean, yeah, your your pilots can spend time in, in med bay, which isn't very interactive, but like unlike XCOM, there's that real kind of like cost benefit thing of like mm. if I expose my left flank here, my good rare, you know, triple plus upgraded long range missile launcher is on that left arm. If I take damage specifically there, there is a greater than zero chance that it gets blown up and I don't have another one. <laughs> That's a really nice kind of tension when yeah. you want to face this way but maybe it's not the right thing to do at that moment like yeah yeah it simulates everything that's cool about mechs <laughs> yeah <laughs> that's why it's that's all it really yeah that's all it really needs you to do to be honest yeah but yeah job done i like it a lot so yeah um yeah i'm a big fan as well i still have really fond memories of mech warrior 2 mm. yeah way, way back in the day yeah. so i think i think the thing it captured for me that i haven't really had before or since is um you always felt like you're in a vehicle um, and that the world outside is this hostile alien place that you could never go out into. Mm. And it just felt very technical, you know, that, that thing about all systems nominal and, and stuff. Yeah, and yeah. Gearing out your um, your mech to take into account how much heat you're going to build up and um, how good of a heat sink you have. And um, and also it just had this like very like uh, work-like... <laughs> aspect to the missions which it sounds like maybe Battletech has as well where like hmm. uh there was a dust off zone you had to get to and uh sometimes it just felt very routine it was just like we're just gonna land on this planet we're gonna go out just stick to the waypoints do the job take out these really um fairly trivial enemies and then get to the dust off zone and do it because that's our job like it wasn't yeah. necessarily the most yeah. interesting challenge it was just i think felt the, like the absence of like apocalyptic kind of stress on like if you don't do this the world ends is actually really nice for this system because like mm. you are just running a business like tom said like mm. you know it's your job for that minute is to like go in and do the best job that you can sometimes your legs get blown off <laughs> um yeah uh, i that's good to have all sorts of fond memories of MechWarrior 2, actually. Just how, you know, how bleak and desert-like the planets were. Yeah, like, yeah, yeah. Such a cool part of it, yeah. Yeah, I do think um, it does feel, because it's a nice, because you see battles from above, it does, even when you're seeing the close-up cinematic shots, um, it's not the most modern-looking game. And um, I think they do look quite toyish, like mm. the mechs. Like, they don't have the same sort of sense of size. Like, I think it's... It's something, a weakness of the game is that it doesn't escalate very much. Mm. And that's because you are always commanding for a lance of four mechs and you are always a mercenary commander. So you, in the course of the, the single player campaign, you do take part in like epic implied planetary sieges and things, but there is, it's a bit like Mass Effect. There's always something that, for, that needs four people exactly to do. <laughs> you know what I mean? There's always like a, like a communications installation that needs taking out or like yeah. a distraction that needs to be launched or a VIP that needs to be extracted while the battle is happening mm. somewhere else on your comms. So it struggles to kind of like, there's, um, there's a few ways it kind of gestures at like what it could be in the long run. Like what's the version of this where you also have supporting forces hmm. where you're not the only lance on the field, like that kind of thing where yeah. it's like, 
um it could escalate more i think also um it might be worth i wanted to pause briefly to talk about like so it has these sort of like light rpg mechanics like you do encounter events that your crew falling yeah. out with each other however some of them didn't even that like i saw a screenshot i think it was on rob zachney's review for waypoint about like two of your pilots getting into a fight because they're of different social class hmm. didn't happen at all in 50 hours. I've okay. never seen it. And actually I commented on that in the review and I know something bugged for me. Like I never saw anything like that. No. I had the same event about a beeping noise in the bridge, like twice, like, <laughs> but not a lot of that stuff. It didn't seem to use those systems, which is a bit of a shame. Yeah. Cause it, it, it's got a surprisingly in depth kind of character creator. To yeah. Me. You get to choose your origin, like where you're, where you're from in the universe. It comes up every now and then, but like mm. you are pretty much strictly on rails. Like you have character, you have conversation trees with characters. Yeah. But like, you know, if you're from like a particular place, then when that place comes up in conversation, you have the option to say, I'm from there, <laughs> but it doesn't change the plot at all. Yeah. And actually like the way you choose to comport yourself, like the, if it has, it, 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 it sort of says that it's kind of about whether or not you're a pure mercenary or whether you believe in something, but that doesn't manifest in any meaningful way in terms of consequences at all, which is a bit of a shame. Mm. There are some nice things. Like it's really nice in like, it feels like it's, um, consciously trying to be a more modern sort of game in some ways, like, and to, to do things right, basically. So like little things that, well, they're not little, but like, and not, not a lot of games do them. Like, um, it allows you to pick your pronoun, uh, separate from, uh, your avatar, which is a really nice touch that doesn't, you know, it doesn't cost anything to implement. And it's like, you can pick he, she, or they, and any avatar you like when you're making a character. Mm. There's no reason not to do that. It's just a nice little inclusion. Yeah. Like, um, it's, it's, yeah, and it's, it's like a, you know, a, a nice cast of characters in other ways. They don't do much, but mm. it's like a cool gang of people. The randomly generated squad mates are a mixed bunch to some extent. Like, mm. um, I got very attached to an extremely good artillery pilot called Lovely Leonard. <laughs> her first name was Lovely and her second name was Leonard. <laughs> but that's a great example of like heat sig style kind of name generation accident. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Lovely Leonard was killed in a uh, particularly climactic planetary assault. <laughs> and I couldn't imagine like my like captain, space captain, me shouting anything other than Lovely! <laughs> um, I had a guy uh, who died eventually, but it was just the most inexplicably terrible like new yorker voice like i'm walking here but like that as his like movement bark like i didn't understand like absolutely inexplicable <laughs> um but then that's very good it's good i like it we've both also played Frostpunk. we have played Frostpunk. punk that this week so um tom do you know what Frostpunk is yes so let's pretend you don't <laughs> and now what would you guess Frostpunk was from the name Frostpunk. <laughs> um, uh, I think about ice elementals, uh, who are in a band <laughs> and, uh, are making alternative music. Shit, I knew that answer would be good. That's why I asked. <laughs> so good. It sounds like, yeah, that sounds like an adventure time, <laughs> yeah. like plot point. Yeah. So imagine that, but the world has gone to hell and there is no music anymore and there's no, there's a lot of sad violin. It's not a sad violence, I suppose. That's the one music that exists. Uh, but no one gets to hear it in the settlements in the icy wastes north of London or in, you know, in the, some sort of inexplicable post-apocalypse where 
you know, uh, or humanity is dying out and everything is becoming icy and shit. Um, and the, there are no, there are no punks anymore <laughs> because everyone has to uh, work so hard. They lose their limbs and has to be moved into hospices and then, you know, either just left to die or, you know, rehabilitated with artificial limbs that don't work very well. Uh, and all the while your resources are dwindling and, uh, all your people are dying and eventually they just get sick of you and throw you out. Yeah, cool. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good game. I, Would you I read, play for that experience as a game? I read uh, Chris Livingston's review, mm. uh, which he gave it 89% and loved it. And everything he said in its favour made me think, I don't want to play this. It sounds awful. It was just like, even when you do do a good job, all your citizens hate you for it and decide to leave. <laughs> I, uh, I did a really bad job. And uh, <laughs> there, there, there were kind of open rebellions and it was all going wrong. And there came a point where they were like, okay, we're, we're sick of everything. Uh, this is the end. And then I thought, oh, so you're all leaving then. And then they, they exiled me, the player. <laughs> and I was like, what the fuck? <laughs> what it? it's just, I hadn't even crossed my mind. They could exile me from that city that I was running. And there's a little sequence where you're tiny, you're a tiny little person just like on the edge of the city, just walking away into the wilderness. I'm like, how has this happened? I'm the player. It's not supposed to happen to me. That's anyway, it's, it's quite good. Yeah. So it's a, it's a city management survival game mm. um set in kind of victorian ice age kind of setting that it mm. does get kind of explained why that happened right. deeper in the campaign yeah. but um but yeah like i really like it as well chris approved multiple chris's like this game <laughs> yeah um the reason i really like it is it's um it's not a sandbox a city building game it is not city skylines or SimCity, even that has a lot of the same systems mm. it's a one well it's got three campaigns but like it's a well one main one it's it's a you know a a challenge like it's a single player thing that you attempt to complete that has a finite length of about 10 12 hours and ends and that um it feels very different to like what these games are often trying to be which is these sort of like indefinite toolbox kind of experiences Hmm. which is good i mean those games are good um, this feels a lot more to me like a board game. Let's keep going back to that world, but it has that kind of like pandemic kind of thing where you're trying to solve a crisis and the game is just about trying to solve that crisis as best as you can and as efficiently as you can. And you can succeed better or worse and be forced into harder or tougher decisions about how you survive. But it's like, and then once you've done that experience, to be honest, I don't know if I'll replay it. Mm. Um, but I'm actually okay with that because like realistically, I probably would play a given city builder for like 10, 15, 20 hours, then feel like I'd seen everything and then not touch it for ages. So a game that manages to have like an experience with an arc and kind of atmospheric moments and planned sort of designed challenges in the same amount of time that I'd probably be playing with these games. I'm actually really down for like, actually for me, it feels like kind of an underexplored hmm. way of structuring one of these games where it's like, it ha- yeah, it has an end. Like don't, you know, the, the goal is not to just keep building a city until it gets bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger. It's the goal is simply to like get as many people as you can through a really shit situation. And that's really interesting. And that I think is backed up mechanically by the fact that there really isn't a single best way of approaching it. Like there are lots of ways to, to succeed how far have you got how deep are you in um so i failed pretty hard over the course of about three hours and then i started again immediately which you know tells you about this game really <laughs> is that uh there's something very 
I fucking love the way it looks and it's kind of beautiful. feels like that. Yeah. yeah it's atmosphere, the, the atmosphere and the kind of what they've done. You're, you're kind of in this sunken cylindrical, uh, it's quite a very abnormal kind of formation in, in this ice. And you've installed your, uh, just an enormous kind of generator, which is like this tower in the middle, which is this burning, relentlessly burning, smoldering, uh, kind of thing, chimney, chimney that just powers, uh, you know, gives you this radius of heat and everyone within that, everyone's allowed to kind of subsist in that warmth. And it gives you this real sense of just, um, being, you know, building this smoky, smouldering shanty town that just grows out in concentric circles from it, and the process of actually building that city is really satisfying and really nice. Even mm. even though ostensibly the atmosphere is like super grim and bad things are happening, um, I love what it does with the tech tree because the tech tree is kind of how it tells the story of your society, and the tech tree is more about, um, uh, sorry. It's not the tech tree, which the laws, the, 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 the law policy system. tree, and the tech yes, tree. Yes, yeah. So the, the the law system is kind of where your moral dilemmas come in, and it's like uh, stuff like, do you put children to work or give them a place to stay and not work and you know be safe? And you get these morale boosts and you know output boosts for various things, and you're always juggling the two main kind of. Uh, driving forces in your society which are um there's a negative one discontent discontent and hope and hope and these things are kind of going up and down against one another and competing and you fail if hope kind of tanks out and you know you, you're you're challenged with you know hopeless situations you, you have to kind of try and your best to i don't want to kind of spoil what you can do in the game because it's yeah. kind of an interesting part of how it develops but a lot of the law laws and policies that you could enforce um can seem like authoritarian or tough or brutal but you kind of respond to this brutal situation in turn you're kind of asking yourself these questions about what's the right thing to do really ultimately morally right thing to do about about this situation and it gives you a very kind of even though it's mournful and, and bleak it's very kind of calm and strangely relaxing I yeah found. Uh, you're in this kind of pocket universe where you're trying to get people through this terrible time <laughs> and uh it, it it's it's odd because when you're playing a city builder it didn't really, I've never really registered this before, but you're really stewing in the atmosphere because there's nothing to break the pacing or, or, mm. or nothing to break the format. You're just in this fixed perspective all the time and you're just surrounded by the sights and sounds of the city going up and down. And I think it's, I've never noticed it because most city building games use this in completely passively. All the music and all the kind of art is designed to basically pacify you and be completely, you know, seamless and stuff like SimCity is supposed to delight and be enjoyable and just generally a nice place to hang out, which is why I think we've talked on the podcast previously about, you know, city building games don't really simulate slums or you know, really negative yeah. social themes because you'd have to stew there and you'd have to look at it all the time and feel bad about it. And Frostpunk is a game that actually challenges that and says it looks like a terrible place to live and you're going to have to sit here and watch it happen and try and help help people. And this is a really interesting psychological position to be in. It is. And it's interesting how it achieves that, I think, because mm. because it's about a disaster scenario, a crisis, where, <clears throat> like, <clears throat> a lot of real social structures have collapsed before the game even begins. There is no money. Uh, there are only two types of people, workers and slightly more skilled workers, called engineers. <laughs> and there is no difference between them except where they can work and how many of each you typically have um but they're not there's not a huge value difference between them and you can't and they don't at least as far as the simulation goes represent like different social groups um so the situation is so dire that like there is no like rich and poor there is no there's no poverty really mm -hmm. um people suffer but they tend to suffer equally um, like, so 
it, it depicts kind of like suffering, but it doesn't depict like needless inequity, if that makes sense. Mm. Like you're not like I've made an amazing banking sector in my city and now this whole area has gone to shit or like, you know, um, something, you know, or something more challenging than that. Like, you know, it's, um, like it has very few, if any kind of real social issues represented in it, or even like contemporary Victorian social issues represented in it at all. Mm. Cause the idea is the world's gone to shit to an extent that we just have to survive and it's very cold. <laughs> um, so there are like moments of like, how do you handle certain things? Like how do you handle, uh, someone stealing food rations or something like that or trying to save themselves yeah. more you know you have interesting decisions to make about that but it feels like even though it does get much closer to like human interest than these games do it still does so from a somewhat position of abstraction does yeah. that make sense yeah totally yeah yeah it's certainly not saying anything about like modern society like it, <laughs> the sims game that does you know uh city sim games are always very political, particularly in their assumptions about tax and spend and things like that. They always come from a very similar position. And so it's very funny to play these games. I mean, I, I imagine someone in Sweden playing um, uh, City Skylines and looking at the tax rates and being like, holy shit, that's low. <laughs> yeah. The idea that you'd lower those tax rates would seem insane to someone in Sweden. And, and uh, someone in America would have a completely different take on that. It's just these games are actually really political in, in interesting, yeah. interesting ways. And Frostpunk definitely dodges that with the post-apocalypse scenario it doesn't have to deal with any of that really you're not taxing people it's just labor everyone is just labor it has some interesting it does have some things to say like it's by the this war of mind developers yeah, so yeah. like it's oh, obvious really? that it's this is yeah this is their next game like it's obvious that, that this is what its purpose is mm. is to make you consider how much you're willing to compromise to survive yeah yeah in fact like i won't spoil anything but i feel like that's something it doesn't quite stick mm. because um i managed to finish it with a society that i was pretty proud of like obviously compromises get made like obviously compromises get made like um i did invent moonshine because it made people happy <laughs> but like there are sort of like totalitarian nuclear options you can go to particularly deep and one thing i really like about it is it just gets the situation gets worse and worse and worse and worse and worse. And even though you'll be in a much better, more, more productive, more successful city 12 hours in than you are when you start, mm. it actually achieves the thing that maybe other games like this, you know, even, you know, back to, uh, Battletech, et cetera, don't achieve, which is like at the very end, it's like, okay, now solve this. And it's like, I can't do that. That sounds impossible. <laughs> and then pulling it off feels great because it's like, it escalates the stakes so much that it goes beyond simply like, and now a harder version of what you've already been doing. It's mm. like, and now we're just going to fuck you over completely, like deal with this. And actually you kind of want that because that's the promise of the game and coming out the other side of that. And then, and so it dangles these sort of like policy, moral disaster, nuclear options um, over your head. And I managed to beat it without doing any of them, which I was really pleased with. I was like, mm. and I was kind of ready for like my medal, like <laughs> where's my medal for like, and I realized that like, and, and it, it does a thing when it, and again, this isn't a spoiler, but it like, it recaps some of the decisions you made and mm. said like, we became this kind of society, but it leans really hard into whatever negative things you did. Right. So mine was quite short because it was like, um, you know, so, like, moonshine's pretty good. No yeah, exactly. That. Like we had legalized <laughs> dueling. Um, <laughs> And, um, and like, because it feels like the message is that survival situations force people into these really uncomfortable positions of compromise. Mm. 
Um, but actually it's still really satisfying to try and figure out, to trying to find a solution that doesn't involve compromising, but knowing that you always have that ability to like press the button marked this form of totalitarianism. Mm. It's not a spoiler to say that you make a really crucial choice about whether or not you're going to make a more rational or more faith-based society. Yeah. That's an interesting one. Um, and I went with faith because I thought, and I, I do think this, that like in that scenario, like a kind of hope based religious way of living is actually a very desirable thing socially and personally. Yeah. And actually created this really, you know, you talk about moments of it that are genuinely calming. You do get the option to like create a faith based police and whip people. That's, that's a, you know, that's a way of maintaining order, but you can also just like, maintain regular like um midnight processionals out in the cold to help people kind of like have a relationship with the cold other than mm. it's bad and it's coming to get us or like candlelight vigils and prayer sessions and things and it's generally quite nice like you build all these churches and things and the bell starts to toll and it's like it feels like you've built something like a little bit more like more human has some culture to it out you know out of this kind of big piece of industrial machinery that you're yeah trying to operate it's interesting because i picked the other one <laughs> and uh <laughs> It's interesting how it frames it. So um, this is actually not too far into the game, so I don't feel too bad about spoiling this as a, a decision you make. But um, uh, you build basically guard towers near uh, your housing. And um, the way it's framed is like, <clears throat> it's initially framed as a really positive thing. Like people feel safer because they feel like there's some sort of law and they the, the people who are guarding them are people who are part of their small community who they know. So they actually know the guards and they're actually supposed to, you know, it's painted as being a good thing. And you get these little story bits where it's like, oh, um, uh, a kid was lost in the cold and one of the guards found them and brought them back to their family because everyone knows each other here. But holy shit, you can see the hooks in there for like where this is going to go further <laughs> down the line if I go down this track and keep on pushing the, you know, as soon as that sort of falls apart and it feels like the game is interested in these themes of, you know, yeah. what happens when those things start to, you know, uh, slide off into their perspective. And sometimes that's just like from mechanical need and sometimes from a civilian saying like, mm. someone stole my bread. When are you going to create the faith police? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I'll do that right away, sir. <laughs> Have some moonshine. Um, I did make myself a little tiny pope. Okay. Little pope. <laughs> it's it, a little accidental pope. It gave me the ability to go, don't worry about it every two days. <laughs> <laughs> and that was this, extremely important in the late game. Is this the anti-pope and the anti-pasto sense? Yeah. <laughs> like, well, the small pope like, before the large pope. It's, it's explicitly not Christianity, but it's very much right, a okay. lot like Christianity. Yeah, yeah. Um, and um you can become something like the kind of the head of the church, basically. It's more mm. like maybe like an archbishop or something, but like... Um, rather than just their captain, you are like, um, the kind of a religious figure and you gain an ability called like the captain's words, which is you just reassure everything that everyone's being okay. And it creates this huge, it basically just tanks your discontent every couple of, every oh, couple nice. of days, which is really, really Very good. Useful. But it felt quite benign to me because mm. it's like of all of the kind of abuse, it's not really an abuse of power because it's basically just like, I say no pun intended, like chill out every two days. And everyone's like, oh, okay. <laughs> like, and that was really helpful mm. like no you know yes maybe a tremendous abuse of power and um, putting myself on a pedestal where i can tell people how to feel about things but it's very cold <laughs> don't underestimate how cold it is uh the uh the game kind of expands by uh you can send scouting parties mm. out to like nodes around your initial base so you uh, um as far as i've played you've got the one base and it's a big area, but it's limited. And that's kind of an interesting thing to contend with later, I imagine. Um, but, uh, you send, you could form scouting parties and send them off to find kind of remains of other, you know, uh, other expeditions that have met various fates and stuff. And you retrieve 
uh, resources from those people and that kind of thing. And that's that's a really nice progression mechanic for this sort of game. It's a really good way of letting you kind of stretch beyond your city without having to build multiple cities, which is the classic thing with a SimCity type game. Mm. Yeah, yeah. You're doing the ability to have outposts later on, but they're not mm. cities. They're like, you you can get like a coal mine and they will send you a cent amount of coal every day. That right. kind of thing. Yeah. yeah. Um, there's travel time to consider. It's, it's, um, it's interesting. Like it has a very, um, strict relationship with time. Mm. Like the campaign takes 45 days. That's it. Right. That's the entire, it will end after that point. Mm. Uh, if it doesn't end before that, because everything goes terribly. And, uh, that means for example, like no children will be born. Like, well, you know, new citizens come from survivors that your scouts find out in the wilderness mm. if you want them. And that allows it to do lots of really interesting things. Like, it is very happy to, like, play a form of, like, refugee chicken with you where it's like, how, mm. you know, like, how will, you know, it'll give you the option to be like, there's loads of, you know, people have heard you're being successful. Refugees are coming. You know, people are seeking shelter. Um, but some of them are sick and some of them are kids. And if you haven't passed a child labor law because you're not a dick, like then, you know, kids are a liability potentially. Yeah. Um, do you just take the working adults? Like, can you stomach that? Do you take the entire first wave? But then this about the second time they come around, you realize you can't build houses anymore and then you're in trouble. Mm. Like putting you in that uncomfortable position, I think is one of his best strengths where it's like, you really want to reach for the easy button the second time around, but you've like told yourself like, no, I'm going to take in everybody mm. i'm gonna do this right and then it's so much harder to do it. like it's almost like a self-set difficulty level called yeah, yeah. trying to do the right thing mm. um it's very cool and it's worth reiterating how good it looks like the, yeah. i was gonna say i think a final thing on that was like the 2d art is really really nice mm. really evocative yeah like it uses like just a lot of gaunt people mm. uh, <laughs> a lot of very sad, cold people sad, cold people uh the, the game itself is 3d right yes yeah, yeah. and uh, it's it looks fucking beautiful like um it's even got just uh like giant machines in it and stuff that are just yeah. very dishonoredy giant very antonov style robots amazing yeah. looking robots beautiful animated as well uh it's uh yeah it's as a aesthetic achievement it's amazing really beautiful mm. it is um i like i'm not huge normally a huge fan of steampunk except outside the context of like dishonored where i would say that it's a very light like yeah. influence mm. it's really not the point <clears throat> um and this i think is successful like, yeah. to the extent that frostpunk is supposed to be because it's a steampunk thing and the steam has frozen. <laughs> um, I think it's very successful. Like it gets what's appealing about that. Like the kind of, mm. the sort of tightly packed winding streets. It has some really lovely little art touches. Like when later on you're building houses, if you build them next to each other, they kind of naturally terrace up with these kinds of little sort of walkways and sort mm. of gantries and things. And you can zoom in and feel like you're, um, you know, looking at like, I don't know, the city from Thief or something. It, like it holds, like even though you're building in like these concentric rings that are quite artificial feeling, it really like, I felt like the place really held together as a place. Yeah. Like totally. that I made. It was yeah. like really. I love cool. being able to pick the giant chimney in the middle and overcharge it as well. Shit was getting especially cold. Yeah. It makes this kind of horn noise. It's going to, everyone gets happier <laughs> as well. <laughs> yeah. And everyone goes, woo <laughs> for 24 hours and then back to the sadness, back yeah. to the moonshine. <laughs> Um, here's a here's a pro tip if you ever do the because this caught me out and it almost swept me over and it's really annoying and it's probably not how the game should work mm. um if you are doing any of the, sometimes citizens will say my house is cold or my workplace is cold and you can say i will ignore that or you can say i will try and heat some of them mm. or you can say i'll try and heat all of them and you can basically say that for a certain amount of time you will heat half the houses or something like that and if you can do that you get a big bonus to hope but here's the thing 
um, I tried to do a thing where I overcharged the generator while I researched actual heat upgrades yeah. so that I could then switch them on and then unovercharge the generator mm. before the it exploded, basically. <laughs> um, however, doing so technically causes the heat to drop. So imagine mm. you have your threshold of required heat and you go, you, you, you exceed that using the oh, I see. overcharge, then you massively exceed it using the upgrades mm. and then you drop the overcharge out and you're still above the threshold, but technically the heat dropped. Yeah. That qualifies as failing the promise, right, right, right. which is really annoying. Hmm. Cause people are like, but I was slightly warmer than this a minute ago. <laughs> yeah, yeah. I hate this. And the discontent goes up, even yeah, though you yeah. solved the problem they originally had. Like little. That's those, like a scripting thing. It's like. Yeah. It's those moments where like, if this was a tabletop game, this is the thing where you're all sat around the table playing That's pandemic or whatever. <laughs> yeah. And you go, it shouldn't work like that. Yeah. Like, this is yeah, fine. I have a house rule. <laughs> yeah, exactly. It feels like, yeah, that's the moment we miss a human GM kind mm. of managing it. But that's not universally true. Yeah. I found it. How did you find getting into it? Cause I found that initially also like Battletech, it doesn't tell you a lot. Yeah. For example, how it took me so long to figure out how to build fucking roads. <laughs> oh yeah. Yeah. It's just like, it's a tiny little, like it's, you've got a building screens and stuff and, it's a tiny little icon on the bottom of the, the the small kind of bar across the bottom of the screen and you've got to find that and that took a while and uh stuff like figuring out how to assign workers to things which is the, the first thing you have to do and you just uh, when you figure out you have to click on the resources and then assign workers you don't and then you see them tunneling like roads out to them and it's a really cool animation but i'm like is this the right thing to do should i be building stuff now like yeah and it feels like it should give you a few more pointers initially you want to be building you want to be researching a lot of uh resource buildings but it gives you quite a lot of choice in the initial research track across like four different places i think you could probably fuck yourself quite badly if you don't unlock buildings that are going to get you lots of coal for example because you're always going to need coal and yeah you can need that there's also like because you start because the the campaign is set in like a single location mm. all of the resources you will ever have right from, from from local sources are all there mm. and they go up in tiers of complexity in terms of how you get them out yeah. and things like that but all the hooks are there for like for later on so no i suppose say later on when you really need wood and you've chopped down every tree in there you can build like massive drills that drill into the ice wall itself to find frozen forests mm. which is a cool idea but those hooks are there from the beginning of the game. So when it initially says like, shit, we've got no wood, everyone's going to die. You don't know to click on the debris field that mm. your workers can go and just pick up from broken crates and stuff. Yeah. You look at the frozen forest or the cliff wall where that icon is and you don't really know which is the one you're supposed to do now. And it becomes clear, but it does feel a little bit inelegant. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I definitely, um, I think a lot of the reason I had to restart was because I'd also built my city really inefficiently not knowing what upgrades i'd get in the future in terms of mm. how stuff was going to be heated like the smaller heaters you can get and how they work and stuff like that um so yeah it's definitely a game that i felt like I'd, i i mean i guess you didn't have to restart it because you sort of got through it but um i think a lot of people might run into that problem where they slightly screw themselves as part i mean maybe it's thematic maybe that's part of i think so i think i think i got a little bit lucky on certain decisions and like but also kind of like i had a sense of what i was in for so i was like i think this is going to be important and then just kind of got lucky slash vindicated in the fact that like mm. the right things turned out to be worth prioritizing yeah that yeah. made sense Chris, didn't you have a protester with an oh, I went to, I went to, yeah. Um, his name is Andrew Baring. It almost looked like Andrew Boring, but he was like my first protester. And I looked, brought up when I only had like 80 people and I brought up the list of like what everyone's doing. And this one guy is protesting and I clicked on him and it was activity protesting. <laughs> biggest complaint everything's fine <laughs> <laughs> like, and i'm not okay mother- with that <laughs> like, yeah. 
I was saying it would be great if that was his picket sign. Like, yeah. <laughs> everything yeah, everything is fine. fine. Everything yeah. is fine. And that man would go on to invent Twitter. <laughs> uh, yeah. Should we do questions? Yes, we should. Yeah, let's do it. First up, Adam writes, Dear Crocus and Cyclamen, I'm currently getting them spring feelings from playing Animal Crossing on my 3DS, and I wondered, what are some of your favorite life simulator games on the PC? Only good one I've played in the last few years was Stardew Valley, and I'm starving for more. Warm regards, Adam. The original Populous, uh, a game in which you could lower the tier of a, a terrain tile underneath a citizen as they were on it. <laughs> terrifying them i presume it was just like a pixel going down but it was uh i, I like i like i like you, like you just like to drop little people yeah just drop them down you know? <laughs> they don't know what's happening but it's great so that's this life is, this is an interesting hair to split is a life simulator like stardew valley or animal crossing where it's like your life or is a life simulator mm. like sim city where it's lives i think it's got to be they've got to be separate lives from you as the player i think as the player I always like, oh no, but that's not what Stardew Valley's like, is it? No, Stardew Valley is like my new farm. Yeah, because I, I was, I was giving that for the populist angle of being like, you're controlling the circumstances. It's strange that sort of life simulator seems to so often involve farming. <laughs> like, yeah. It's also Animal Crossing and. It uh, might be because almost all service related jobs are profoundly unsatisfactory. <laughs> <laughs> oh hey, what about, I haven't played it yet, but uh, Jason Rohrer's new game. Um, one hour, one life. You, mm. uh, it's very much a life simulator and his, his main concept is like when you join the, when you launch a game, you join the server and you are spawned as the baby of an existing character. Mm. Um, and, uh, you can't do anything. You, you helpless baby. The, that person has to support you to adulthood, which only takes like 20 minutes or something, um, or less. Um, but. Uh, it sounds like it's a fucking nightmare because <laughs> players are jerks. Yeah. <laughs> like even when it's their own child, they're not that willing to, to help that person to adulthood. But the idea is like, um, it's all like caveman stuff at the moment. Uh, but as players get together and, and, and craft more shit and advanced technology, he's going to be making assets and adding them to the game to represent the new technology levels they reach. Hmm. Um, so it's crazy ambitious, but yeah, definitely a life simulator. You know, I have a soft spot for The Sims and always will. Yeah, it's and great. Like, great games. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I sporadically return to The Sims 4 is just a way to pass like an afternoon every now and then. It's a yeah. management game. It's just about time management and people catching fire and kissing. Like that's, that's what it is. Mm. And that's good. It's a good thing. I like that. That's a good yeah. Thing. And it, it's not about farming, which makes it the rare <laughs> example. Better. <laughs> yeah. A job is just something you either sit down at a computer and uh, do as a bar decreases and then you come away with that with money. That's quite realistic. <laughs> <Very> realistic. <laughs> or you just go away. Hmm. You go to work like your parents used to go for work. You just vanish. And then when you return to your own house, you sort of play the house, I think, in The Sims. The secret <laughs> of The Sims is you are the house. But the house directs people's destinies, like a haunted house. Yeah, exactly. Yes. Too much control. I this is, um, random, but I, I just, uh, remembered recently that, um, The Sims is apparently, uh, uh, Will Wright had the idea for it when his house was destroyed in a forest fire in California. Oh, he, him and his family were fine. They, they all got out in plenty of time, but they just lost their entire house and all their possessions. And yeah. as he was rebuilding, he was thinking about like how you fit all these things in a house. And he was really interested in the idea of just building his house and, you know, slotting things together and <laughs> thought it would make a good game. <laughs> well, it paid off. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> to say the least. The, the ultimate life sim is, uh, it's Spore. Because you, 
you make a blob and you give it five limbs and say, fucking figure it out <laughs> and watch it be- grow into a beautiful five-legged bird, dick. perhaps, <laughs> or, or dick. Like, I tried to make a, a race of sentient guitars in uh, <laughs> it's a I, terrible mistake. That's, how's that going to end up looking, Tom? Uh, so it ended up looking, uh, so I, I, the, the strings of the guitars were spikes, right? Uh, and but the head was the neck of the guitar and they would frequently bend over and impale their own heads on the spikes <laughs> that were actually their own. It was not good evolution chris <laughs> i remember very uh, bad evolution uh, i uh i ran the pc game of sporecast which was a, a curation of of cool spore creatures um and so i would regularly browse as part of my job um the most popular new creations for spore and add them to this list and it was full of just incredible stuff mm. people made it absolutely amazing things and i played the game with that I reviewed it with with those creatures in my world and so it'd just be like a village full of grandpas in wheelchairs were being attacked by a giant chair like a huge <laughs> chair where like it's Where's stomping your now it's stomping on the, the wheelchair guys are trying to throw spears at it and it's stomping on them and it's got this like a beautiful ornate feather inlaid in the back of the chair as it stomps on their their houses and then i run away from that and i run into like a small uh cluster of uh moving sniper rifles <laughs> where they're like tripod mount is their front legs and they drag themselves along like that <laughs> Like, this is incredible. <laughs> Just as God intended. <laughs> Not really a life sim in the kind of like, live your own life, but like it could be if you owned a farm no, sense. So it's... much as like, what, live your own life as if you had ready access to a lot of acid. <laughs> Next up is Steb, who writes, Hi. In episode 234, Chris talked about the realization of playing a game wrong. With all walls must fall. This made me think of an experience I'd had the day before when playing Train Valley. This game could be described concisely as mini Metro meets Transport Tycoon. The player must build tracks between stations and control the switch points to guide each train to its destination. I only realised after halfway through the second world that you can make trains stop and wait by clicking on them. I've been playing a fast-paced game of timing and planning, where due to my slight misjudgment of a train acceleration and speed, I often ended up diverting trains at the last minute by building new track on the fly Wallace and Gromit style to avoid crashes the ability to stop and start trains made precise timing redundant and it became a game of careful network planning and packing the tracks to capacity for maximum efficiency my question then is can you think of any moments where missing a mechanic has completely changed the nature of a game for you Steb so I can't but (laughs) this did make me think it's a good story for one thing but also Mm. um the f- the game he was accidentally playing sounds more fun than to me mm-hmm. than the game subsequently discovered and i sort of feel like that's one of those instances where like you're kind of allowed to forget you learned that and keep trying to do the wallace and gromit laying the track yeah. in front of the train game maybe yeah i I frequently play games wrong, but I do it knowingly. Like I see what they're, they're asking me to do, and I decide no, it'd be better a game if you had to do this. And actually, I, I do this with uh, Far Cry um, uh, Four and Five, uh, where I have my own idea of how alarms should work in that game, and they don't work that way. I think I used to believe they. I think it actually does answer the question because I, I think I did believe they worked that way at first, and then right. I, after I discovered they didn't, I carried on playing that way. And it's with an alarm. At an outpost in Far Cry, there's several alarms, and if the enemies, like, see you, they'll go and set off an alarm. Um, and you can shoot the alarms, and that breaks them. 
Or you can go all the way up to the alarm and then do a really long sort of hacking animation that, that eventually disables it. And that is the exact same thing. There's no reason not to just shoot it. If you have a silenced weapon, you might as well just shoot it. Like a bow. People, like, even if they're close enough to hear the noise, they just kind of look at it and think, oh, that's weird. <laughs> like, there's no reason not to just shoot it. Um, and that, that makes no sense. Uh, and it's a fun challenge to see how can I get close enough to an alarm to disable it manually. So the rule I play with is if you can do that, if you get close enough to disable it manually, all alarms are disabled. You just pretend you solved the alarm problem. They're all off. If you shoot them from a distance, um, uh, then the other one is not disabled. You know, you've got to manually shoot all of them. And that's an interesting challenge also, uh, before anyone wants to trigger them. And then the other rule I make up, which is not true at all, but I thought it was for a long time, is that if they find a body, they should try and sound the alarm. They don't. <laughs> they, you, they can find as many bodies as you like. They'll be alarmed but they don't actually set off an alarm they're just like oh this is weird people are dying they want to make a fuss like they have to see you specifically before they set off an alarm um and so i play as if no one can find a body until all alarms are disabled right all alarms are disabled in my head if i've used one of them up close or if i've shot them all um and neither of those things are true (laughs) but it's it's a much Mm. more fun stealth game if you do it that way i think arbitrary yeah arbitrary restrictions kind of accidental or otherwise uh, can result in great things in games especially games that are sandbox enough to kind of deal with deal with that i remember once um supreme commander 2 i decided that i would try and destroy the enemy using only engineers uh which build buildings they just do basic build buildings unit and you can give them a gun just a shitty gun like it's an upgrade in the upgrade yeah. track that lets you give them a gun um you can also give them jetpacks <laughs> just a th- just a thought is uh, this a uh, cybern uh Race. no this was um i don't think it was cyber actually i can't remember which one it was it was one of the basic hmm. oh no the cybers are the red ones right yeah yeah i think you're right yeah yeah okay. actually I think um, the so the thing is that they're the cheapest thing to build and uh if you've got like a factory the great thing you do in the supreme commander is that you build energy uh kind of uh production facilities around your factories and they give them they make them more productive the energy goes directly into the building and they produce mm. things faster uh, and if you've got just uh just just a basic supply of ore you can just produce hundreds of engineers then you can make the engineers build more factories that build engineers <laughs> and then so on and so on until you've maxed out your unicap with engineers and then you research the upgrade that gives them all a laser and all a jetpack and then you box select and right click on the enemy and fucking hell <laughs> it's the most amazing sight you've ever seen the tiny these tiny little balls just little innocent ball robot creatures uh just but hundreds of them flying through the air in a kind of beautiful cascade and then they land <laughs> and then the lasers begin and then the you know it's just a spreading virus of like borg-like destruction as they just unfold and start delivering the lasers at buildings and uh it's, it was they patched it <laughs> uh, they patched it because uh, i wrote an article piece of gamer about it <laughs> and it um it didn't work for long after that <laughs> but fuck it was good um i love games where you can just go single-mindedly down one track and kind of break yeah. it uh, i've always loved games that let you do that i also did that with super Commander 2 there was um also cybern um they had the cheapest experimental unit, which is, uh, I think, I want to call it the Megalith? I might be wrong. One of the smallest spider Spider thing, yeah. yeah. It was like the, the smallest spider bot, much less spectacular than the Supreme Commander 1 spider bot, which is a huge thing, but also That's cheap. the Monkey Lord. Yeah. Um, and Subcom 2 had these much smaller ones, quite quick to build one, and they're, they're incredible at ground attacks, but they have no anti-air, and uh, they're not that tough. But then the, there's another unit called an adapter, which provides a shield and is anti-air if you upgrade it the mm. right way. Um, and so you can just churn out thousands of them and a bunch of uh, these spider bot type things 
and those two together they <laughs> protect against every single thing they can possibly do to you and that just wins the cybers are the best they're yep. just the best in any, any in anything uh, uh, subcom one they had walking boats yeah that's what you I can't really say. argue with that yeah i mean i just, yeah that's one of, one of my plans with subcom one it's like what if i just build everything that's a boat and then there's like quite a small puddle in the middle of the it's a poor early game it was because they could just they could only do the puddle and they've got really long range artillery a great naval factory for this tiny <laughs> yeah. puddle and then they're just like the puddle is just completely full of boats there's there's no space for more boats uh, and then you research the, the legs upgrade and suddenly they all just kind of like walk out and it's horrendous <laughs> it's really terrifying i love supreme commander does a great line in radiuses mm. radii um and you know for like there's intel range there's uh, like true sensor range where you can sense even stealth units and then mm. there's like uh anti-air range then there's land range uh maybe there's like an artillery weapon and that's one range and then there's direct fire and that's a different range and then there's torpedo range and i, I think boats are the only thing that have all of those things like and so you select a boat and it just has like 17 like rings around it <laughs> and you just you don't know what they all mean right away but you just get the sense that this thing does everything so best game Mm. I think in terms of self-set rules, um, it's one of the reasons I love Jedi Academy. Mm. Like I played through that game so many times, but I always do it with like a, a rule for this playthrough, which is like, I'm going to be like a good Jedi student and only ever use the lightsaber and force powers for everything. Mm. Like you can't, you're not allowed to use a gun or a grenade or anything like that. And then trying to do the like slightly weird, like, I secretly don't believe I have force powers playthrough, which makes no context in the sense of the story. You just do Jedi training, but there is the kind of like, well, that was weird. Anyway, back to guns kind of version, which is also really cool. I used to think in Jedi Knight that was just a pure like, um, uh, I don't know, sort of style thing. But I would uh, there was a button I don't think it ever really needed, but when you had a lightsaber out, you could turn it off, kept it in your hand. Yeah, you, you can do it in Academy as well. You just press yeah. the number key for the thing again, and I would just I would keep my lightsaber off until I really need it. Yeah. yeah only yeah, when I was actually going to totally. attack would I turn my lightsaber totally. on. That option is there. It's, yeah. Yeah, it's mandatory. Like, you have to switch it off. You can't just run around with it like it's a sword and a yeah. RPG. Like, yeah. That moment where you, you come across the enemy and they've got a lightsaber and it's, you know, that red lightsaber and you just draw it standing still. Yeah. Ah, that's good. It's, it's good. That face off yeah. moment is so good. Mm. It's good. It's one of the reasons that like slightly ruined in KOTOR where like mm. everyone jumped into battle with like a huge leaping attack and they would like their lightsabers in the air, mm. which is like, no, let me stop for a moment. Yeah. Light it. Everyone will appreciate that. <laughs> and then we go. Yeah. That's Star Wars. That's how it works. Yeah, totally. All the better if it's raining. <laughs> Indeed. Yeah. Yeah. The next question comes from James, who, well, it's a mixture of question and also genuine expertise on a subject, which mm. is um, always welcome. Genuinely. Uh, James writes, Hello, terms and conditions. After your Steam Spy chat last week, he means two weeks ago, because this is pre-rest. Mm. Um, I felt complaint, compelled and a complaint. I felt compelled to write in. I'm currently working at a small tech company to implement what is now known as the dreaded GDPR, all new privacy regulation coming into force across all of the EU and our little island in May. The laws basically are quite open to interpretation, but place a whole lot more power in the individual to stop companies using data that can personally identify them, particularly sharing it with other organizations without consent. This data includes profiles, adverts, mailing lists, IP addresses, etc., etc. Not only that, the law applies to companies that hold data on EU citizens, so international companies must also comply or potentially face hefty fines. The Steam conversation stirred me to wonder how this is going to affect the games industry. It seems Steam and Facebook are just getting their controversy out of the way early. The privacy bus is tooting its horn. 
Anyway, better make this a question. If you could write a piece of legislation that everyone will hate, but ultimately help the games industry do good, what would it be? Latest, games. And now we get to wade into the territory called Make Up a Law. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> At 20 past 10 on a Wednesday night for a couple of glasses of rum. None of us, law, none of us have uh, law degrees uh, or any expertise of the law at all. But uh, <laughs> I would love it if for every hour of game... 99% of it must be interactive in some way. <laughs> um, mm. like that, that's the law. No, no fucking 20 minute cutscenes. No, no one minute cutscenes. That's yeah. too much. Or, like, if the cutscene's skippable, then technically that is interactive, that's, right? So that, that's, that's fine. fine. That's yeah. fine. It's completely allowed. Um, but yeah, any, anything that, you know, more than one minute in 60, that's the crushing fines. What if <laughs> cutscenes still exist, but you can press a button at any time to make a random character in, in the scene go, woo! <laughs> <laughs> That'll get around the regulation. It's not the spirit of the law. That's but... how, like, Ubisoft will get around this in Far Cry. <laughs> <laughs> like, we're still in this cutscene. Vast is still going to talk to your face for seven minutes, yeah. but you can make him say, woo! Do you know woo! what the definition of madness is? <laughs> 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 doing the same, woo! Again and again, woo! But I guess it's a random character in the scene, so the, the wolf in a cage over there might go, woo! Yeah. That's <laughs> the idea, random right? moment. Yeah. <laughs> That makes sense for a wolf. Right. That's narratively consistent. That is narrative, but nonetheless interactive. So it's the law, but it's legal. It's legal. That's the main thing. It's like you control a mosquito during this scene. You can fly around freely, <laughs> land on anybody. The mosquito can say woo too. Yeah, sure. Uh, <laughs> I was I don't thinking know why like, that was the interaction. I thought it could literally be anything, but for the reason I wanted to be that. <laughs> but it's it's the power of its interaction is perhaps limited in the narrative. Like maybe you bite Vass and eventually gets malaria, but not for a long time. <laughs> Well, how about you press a button in any game cutscene and Vast from Far Cry 3 shows up and delivers that monologue. <laughs> Regardless of game and company. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Like, gone home. <laughs> but you could just wander off. That would be, that'd be the best speech ever. You could just wander the fuck away yeah. from him as he's saying it. Yeah. I love games that let you do that as well. But uh, you're in a cage when Vast does that to you. Yeah, that's actually, it really builds me, particularly in Far Cry 5. Like, it's mm. just, it goes to such lengths to try and shove your face in the villains or shove the villains face into yours. And, uh, Kiss! Hello, basically, Kiss. yeah. It's like, narratively <laughs> connect. <laughs> um, it does that so much, and I'm just so tired of it now. Like, it, it, I think with, I don't remember, I didn't like the plot of Far Cry 3, but Vast was really well acted, and it was like one of the, the first great bits yeah. of digital acting. Um, and I think I maybe papered over a bit, like, the, I don't know, that trick was relatively new at that point and um, shoving a face in it. To some extent, I was just kind of like, wow, look at that face. That really works. Like, yeah. <laughs> I'm seeing all his expressions. Shove that, that, really looks like that thing right like, at me. <laughs> when I see the guy who plays Vass in TV shows, I'm like, oh, it's Vass. Yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, just, yeah. Like, 100% recognize all his mannerisms and uh, all that stuff. Um, but uh, like, the more they do it, the more you're just like, oh God, like, yeah, okay, you want to show me your facial acting. It's not even good in Far Cry 5. It's, it's, I don't think it's as good as it was in Far Cry 3. It's just like... <laughs> people just looking boring and saying incredibly <laughs> tedious dialogue to you Woo! and that, and um and it, yeah some some of those cutscenes you can't skip because it's in engine enough that they probably don't know how to advance you forwards like right. a certain amount um mm -hmm. but yeah i agree that should be illegal no joke, <laughs> no joke right, if you can't if you can't skip me forward you can't do a cutscene what i would i wonder if there's a case for tightening advertising standards against what can be implied to be a game because they obviously exist but like talking of technically this is in engine 
technically this is an engine is literally what's printed at the bottom of a lot of like <laughs> right pre-movie kind of hype rolls for games and things mm. and total nonsense but in more in even you know in less clear language than that it's, yeah it's often was it in, in, it's in engine footage engine, the yeah, current engine. one yeah but it used to be like alpha footage sometimes it'd be like you know another made up word footage or you know concept footage like it, there's been loads over the years that they've used yeah. to kind of try and get away from it show the actual game would be with the UI would be like that'd be the way the law I pass. Yeah. Like I think actually, um if I remember right, the regulations on Steam screenshots at least. I don't know about uh, probably not trailers, but the, for the screenshots they they're very clear now that it has to be in game and the UI has to be there if there is a UI and that kind of thing. Mm. I suppose Ooh. the argument is that you should you're selling the sort of mind's eye sense of what the game is like. Mm. But actually if that doesn't come across from how the game actually plays, then that's not what the mind's eye sense of what the game no, is. No. <laughs> not really. But the experience of the game isn't the mind's eye experience of imagining what the game is. The experience of the game is this. playing it with the UI and everything that, you know, the actual game. Oh, yeah. I guess actually my law, and this is a total dickhead law, but <laughs> uh, <laughs> since that's the question, um, is I would say all trailers have to be purely in-game footage like mm. uh, i mean basically your point but like you can't even do like a fun live action thing where it's really obvious it's not the game and you're not even pretending it's the game fuck you show me the fucking game <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> there, was, there have been some good ones though there have been some very good I don't ones. care <laughs> um and like i think i think people watching like really high level cg footage know that that that's what it is. I mean, the, the greatest gap in yeah. modern games, I think, is probably Star Wars The Old Republic mm. uh, between the two things. So uh, Star Wars The Old Republic, when they did their uh, the kick off the latest kind of arc uh, storyline, had a fucking amazing Star Wars short. They made a really good five minute Star Wars short about, you know, um, a pair of brothers who were raised in different ways. And there's an amazing lightsaber fight in the middle of it. And I'm glad that exists as a thing. <laughs> and I know that the game doesn't look like that at all. And anyone investi investigating that game to even just the, just the, the merest Google will realize the game <laughs> doesn't look like that. And it is actually a big old MMO. And there's going to be a lot of kind of, uh, baggage around it. Um, but I think I quite like that, that exists. Maybe actually, yeah, maybe I can revise my law because you're just reminding me that like one of my favorite trailers of all time is the Warcraft 3 cinematic one that was just like an orc and a human fighting. Mm. And it was like mm. the most spectacular combat scene I'd ever seen in anything. Uh, I think my, my law would be on your Steam page, uh, you must have one trailer that is purely gameplay footage and it must be the first one. Like, right. So when I go to your Steam, right. your Steam page, I guess it's like more of a Steam guideline than a... Uh, a law that you can be arrested for <laughs> um, but yeah I just want to click on the same page and I just want to it's so common for me to go there and the fucking trailer is just like a bunch of cinematics and teasers and slogans and it's not even like you know uh, oh maybe that's that's the best thing for your company but I as a player want you to do this for me it would be better for you if you did this if you just show me the fucking game I'm not going to buy the game off a bunch of slogans and cinematics that's mm. never going to happen uh, bonus law also regarding trailers uh instead of the trailer starting at one third mark the trailer has to start the start simple but you know the trailer's got to start you can't be showing like yeah a word flashing up or a oh so you mean like up, it has to get or, going right from the start yeah, yeah, yeah. So you can't be like once upon a time in a world populated by walking sniper rifles <laughs> uh, it's got to actually you know show the sniper rifles immediately get you in there straight <laughs> away surely that to some extent is just taking away people's ability to set things up or like <laughs> prime the audience to receive something exciting just punch them in the face with it. Just go, just go. there's some kind of I can't remember what it is but there's, there's some kind of uh 
a law of YouTube that you can always skip at least the first 15% of any given video. Yeah. Like if it's 15 minutes long, you can skip the first you know, yeah. 10 minutes at least. Um, and that's, I found that to be broadly true. <laughs> Maybe that's, that, that shouldn't be a law. It should be like a, a functionality that's built into services <laughs> yeah. where you could just activate that as like a checkbox. Just skip the first 15% of those. Cause skip, particularly skip to first Zimmer womp. exactly it should it should look at the behavior of people who do skip through the video and Mm. see where they stop like if they keep skipping and skipping skipping and then they get to the like three minutes in and they're like oh i'm gonna watch from here then it should know that and and then just start this applies to um, more big data (laughs) (laughs) yes more algorithms it's supposed to uh, dev talking heads videos where they should they've only got 30 seconds of footage to show you um but if they have people talking about it in between then they can stretch it out to four minutes yeah Um, but if if algorithms the magical algorithms i don't understand uh they they see where viewers uh give you know sit down and watch for a prolonged amount of time and just give you that as a mashup probably yeah. going to show you the bits of game mm. sweet bits of game a little indicator that says you've seen all of the actual game footage in this <laughs> you can behind the that. scenes <laughs> vid doc go and live <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> you can stop now yeah the rest will just be game developers saying how excited they are about something they can't talk about <laughs> I don't know if we answered the question. That's the Lord's or when have we ever? Next comes from Henry, who writes, Dear Crates and Crow Puns, I love Typing of the Dead, which turns a boring typing exercise into an action-filled and hilarious shooter. What other mundane PC-related tasks can be turned into gameplay mechanics? Plugging in USB devices for reloading a gun? Deleting files for restoring health? Ideas? Keep potting the cast. Henry from Germany. Incidentally, I love the idea of the gun... The reload animation where you go to reload the ending gun and the clip doesn't go in the right way around. So you turn it around <laughs> yeah. and then it's, it's still the wrong also way around. Actually, and then you turn it around again and then it's the right way around. <laughs> and then the event clip type C, which can go in either way around. And happy. Uh, I, my first thought about this was, um, uh, oh, you could have something where like the, how far you move the mouse that day is some kind of metric that's, uh, that's good. Um, and then I realized, no, actually what I want is like, how little you move the mouse that day. I want a game where like I get more and more points the less I use my computer and the less I move my you mouse. I'm very good at keyboard shortcuts. Because I, I get RSI and I uh so I should be minimizing my computer use and I need it for work, so uh, I gotta do that. Um and I wanna play games and I can play some on gamepad and some I need mouse and keyboard for. Uh and what I really want it to do is like everything else. Everything that isn't just me playing a game or me doing work, I want it to tell me like how much I I used the mouse and how much I uh, basically you know injured my hands doing things right. that didn't fucking matter like browsing Twitter. Hmm. RTSs have done this to a great extent, but I fucking love box selecting and things. <laughs> and that is a good game of like game mechanic. It's just a satisfying thing to do to watch things highlight mm. and you know become under your control. And, uh, yeah, RTS have, have nailed this, but, you know, anything that's just kind of ex- growth built what on if you, really. What if you could, like, box select all the icons on your desktop, then right-click somewhere, and they all march there? Oh, shit. <laughs> Holy crap. Oh, my God. <laughs> Microsoft, you better be listening. Windows 11. And the game tries to figure out how powerful that unit would be from the, the words involved in the name of the shortcut and the icon as well. <laughs> Recycle bin is fucking slaughtering everything. Everything's getting recycled. everything in that gets yeah. near it. Just like the... <laughs> Recycle bin is OP, man. <laughs> I should make this game. Uh, what were, I feel like there's been games where they look at the files on your computer and they make some kind of game mechanic out of yeah, them. What if defragging, totally but it's Tetris? <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, actually, like, um, I use a, a program called Sequoia View, which, like, yeah. has a visual representation of how much space all the files are taking up. And that creates this really beautiful looking, like, grid thing 
that feels like it has game potential. Mm. If uh, yeah, if you like, I guess deleting a file in that would be this really satisfying thing of destroying that square and then the other squares like resize to fit it if they're all like squishy <laughs> physics <Yeah>. squares mm. <laughs> they in pop some ways sound. in some ways the forced surprise windows update is the cutscene <laughs> of computing <laughs> the and so you should be able to press a button illegal for sure, during so. a windows update to make it go woo international regulations say this has to be in it woo <laughs> and like that would be that would give you that moment where it goes like woo and it gets stuck and you're like oh fuck <laughs> yeah. and then you have to reinstall from a, a restore disc because that is again a form of cutscene you have to press a button to say we're in uh, you come up with like a fucking sticky keys prompt <laughs> exactly yeah. all the time yeah do you want me to woo constantly yes or only when <laughs> you press shift <laughs> that's what I demand from my operating system yeah, exactly okay you've activated <laughs> constant woo recycle bin has eaten all my life now so yeah. I might as well just have woo <laughs> sticky woo <laughs> what are we talking about Next is Mitchell, who writes, Dear Crate and Crowbar, I recently finished work on a project to commemorate playing through The Witness with a group of my friends. I designed and painted a set of puzzle panels on square foot canvases, which is my first foray into non-miniatures painting in decades. Also, I was recently inspired by some of the music in the Sea of Thieves beta, and I spent the last few nights trying to transpose hurdy-gurdy music to my dusty old piano, which I haven't touched in years. Journalism and development aside, how often do games inspire you to get in touch with your creative side? Keep up the great pods. Mitchell, Oxbay underscore. Hmm. I must have said this before, but like my beginnings is someone who figured it out that they wanted to write for a living started as like MMO fan fiction when I was like 13, 14. <laughs> so that's a form of that, I think. Mm. Base construction in June 2. I used to really get into that. It's like what, not just like what an optimal construction of walls around this base on a little patch of rock mm. surrounded by sandworms, but what would look the coolest and what would actually be like in the fantasy, the best kind of representation of an Atreides base on this piece of rock. Like just, uh, to buy into a fantasy is so hard on the thing that just looks so primitive now is, is one of the great delights of video games. I think it's something that doesn't quite happen with, um, other things. Hmm. Good answer. I, it probably doesn't really count, but like, um, uh, during a development of heat signature, I, to try and make the galaxies I ended up just taking some sprites John had drawn and coloring them randomly and overlaying them on, on each other randomly using a uh, mode called additive um, blending, which is where if you add two colors on top of each other, they get brighter basically. Um, and it, like drawing black on top of something does nothing. Drawing white on top of something makes it completely white. Um, and if you draw a bunch of colors on top of each other that way, it looks awesome. <laughs> it glows and it just looks really interesting. Um, and so I made a little test project um, in the new version of Game Maker where sort of as as you hold down the cursor and move it around, it's constantly creating sprites and coloring them that way. Mm. And it creates this beautiful, like, glowing... It's like, like a paint program, basically. You just create this, like, amazing glowing line. Um, and I didn't really have an idea for a game, but I made it so that every time you click, it kind of picks a unique color for that, and then you draw in this amazing glowing color, and it stays there. But then as soon as you click with a new color... Because it's not, instead of like painting a canvas, I'm actually creating like thousands of objects. Like all the time you're clicking, we're creating all these new objects that are all stacking on top of each other. That means that when you draw a new line, I can apply physics to them and they all get a force propelling them away from the new line you've drawn. So every new line you draw like 
pushes the other ones away and they kind of explode out of the out of the frame uh it just feels really nice and there's nothing more to it (laughs) i can't think of anything else to do with this it just feels really good to like every time you draw a line it fucking destroys the last line you drew what you've done is you've you've taken that crash that happened in windows where uh, your curse will be infinitely replicated (laughs) then you've added a physics element (laughs) and that sounds amazing (laughs) yeah hmm yeah i'm trying to think of other like other than like like work related stuff mm. like when i think games have made me want to cook more <laughs> genuinely i think that's you know that's something that actually maybe has partly come from like the sims or life games like that where you kind of like look after yourself in a particular way because you have to because that's the game mechanics and it's like this character lives better than me <laughs> <laughs> like this character hasn't just eaten crisps <laughs> like <laughs> and that that can inspire you to you know go and actually do more interesting creative things with mm. how you take care of yourself which is broadly a good thing thanks video games i kind of I, I like the way games trick you into think you're being creative even while you're actually exploring avenues that the developers have right. <laughs> left to do that so um, uh, the, the best examples are stuff like diablo 3 where of course the developers know you're going to combine you know the whirlwind with this ability but it still feels creative to discover it's almost like yeah. the illusion of creativity and yeah. gives you enough enough uh toys to to make that happen uh, but it's not quite the same as uh, what was that DS game where you could just draw your characters? Oh, Scribble Noughts. Scribble Noughts, and even stuff like Spore, where Spore is super creative. Like I don't know why Spore's in my in my brain today, but you know that was kind That's of right, cool, and really cool creative tools mm. for making monsters. And it was procedurally animate what the fuck you'd done, and it was often yeah. seemed cruel <laughs> in some way <laughs> that you'd made this thing. But it was still great. That was amazing. I guess such a rad rep, but like. um you know, creating a creature in Spore is one of the, the most magical things in gaming. Yeah, it's crazy. Just you design this thing and then the game just says it would walk this way. <laughs> Here's it moving around. Here's it trying to eat. Yeah. A final question comes from Simon, who writes, Dear weighted slow bar. If such thing were possible, presumably through some kind of transdimensional magic portal, which video game characters would you like to have guests on the podcast? Personally, I think I'd enjoy hearing from some of the great Bioware companions like Garrus, HK47, and Jolie Bindo. Many thanks, Simon. Uh, P.S. Despite the thematic fit, you can't have Gordon Freeman or any other silent protagonists for obvious <laughs> reasons. Sora's coming. Sora's coming. The issue here Gordon's is partly like, obviously, fun get video game characters to talk to is one thing. Video game characters that are specifically going to offer value to a podcast about video games <laughs> is a slightly different consideration. Kind of self-awareness There's- is required, right? I love um in Into the Breach all the pilots have a different like personality and there's uh, like 16 or 20 of them um and I gather a lot of it is written by Chris Avalone I don't know mm. how much exactly but I feel like at some point they were maybe reaching for a theme that they hadn't used before and so there's like a robot who's really into gardening <laughs> and just almost everything he says manages to relate it back to gardening <laughs> and I'd like to have him on the podcast I think I'd quite like to have Andrew Ryan on the podcast. <laughs> <laughs> That'd be good. Because I, I, he's, the only, he's the only video game character I can, I, I assume he's drinking every time he's speaking. <laughs> like, there's, you know what I mean? There's a sort of like, you get a lot of monologues, you'd get a lot of like... A host chooses, a listener obeys. <laughs> <laughs> That's never the way around it works. Um, like, yeah, exactly. Like, you'd get a, um, you know, a lot of kind of like brandy sw- like swirling monologues about whatever the fuck right? no pods no kings only man <laughs> <laughs> nice you got there the second one was, was the one. <laughs> um 
I'd like uh, I'd like Glottis from Grim Fandango. Oh god, yeah. Who uh, is I don't know if anyone's played it. Or Manny actually. Uh, Manny, they'd both be great as both on the same time. They've got, they've got that rapport. You can't buy that yeah. rapport. That's the thing. Sort of podcast needs. Uh, so Glossus is an, an enormous. He would not fit in this room for sure. Just an enormous orange demon. Um, but I, I'd want to hear his kind of you know clowny everyman take on on the, the gaming issues of the day. Yeah, I, I would. I would take Sam, but not Max. <laughs> <laughs> Sam the dog. Yeah. What like, is Max? The rabbit. Rabbit. Is it? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> yeah, he's like a crazy little rabbit. Okay. We could get into that, but that's um, not. I'm trying to think. Bit of cane from Red Alert. <laughs> oh man, that's also, that's also that, very good. I'm really into like the monologue villains. Actually, very monologue. The best choice yeah. for this. Mm. Um, Brian Blessing on. How about? No, that's dumb. <laughs> I was going to suggest the helicopter pilot from Deus Ex. <laughs> Jock. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Do you see a bomb? <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> Just, just warning whenever a bit is really flagging. <laughs> oh my god, Chris, a question. A bomb, you've bombed it. It's, <laughs> this is bombing. JC, etc. I think we might have exhausted our creative potential mm. stemming yeah. from video games. Feel free to shout during the outro if a dazzling podcast <laughs> guest character occurs to you. However, you listening to this may send us a question by emailing us questions at creatingcrowbar.com or tweeting us at Crate and Crowbar. You can also find us on YouTube at youtube.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. And as ever, this podcast and its spin-offs is supported by our Patreon. Details for that can be found at patreon.com forward slash Crate and Crowbar. Finally, we may be found on Twitter as individual human beings. In principle, I am on there at C Thurston, which is C-T-H-U-R-S-T-E-N, Tom Senior. I'm there at PCG Ludo, which is L-U-D-O. And I, Tom Francis, am at Pentadact, P-E-N-T-A-D-C-T. Woo! Uh, <laughs> that's <laughs> <interesting>. <laughs> <laughs>